19. Furnace. Freight car. Homecoming. Bagpuss. Graham Norton. 1. Greetings, listeners. You are now conditioned and ready to comply by listening to this Empire Podcast spoiler special for Captain America Civil War. I am Chris Hewitt. Welcome. On this podcast, I'm joined by Helen O'Hara. Hello. And Dan Jolin, who wrote the five-star review for Captain America Civil War, the first Marvel movie to receive five stars in Empire Magazine. And also Dan is the one who made the rather bold claim we'll be discussing over the next hour or so that it's the best Marvel Studios movie yet. Hello, Dan. I said all those things and did all those things. And I ain't afraid to admit it. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, welcome. If you don't know how an Empire Spoiler Special works, this is how it works. If you haven't seen Captain America Civil War, then leave right now, go to a cinema, watch the movie, the 13th Marvel Studios movie, then come back and listen to it because over the next... uh, while. A, a, a while, a, a, fair, a fairly substantial period of time, the three of us are going to be getting into the movie in forensic detail, third act revelations, spoilers, who lives, uh, who, who lives slightly less, all that sort of stuff. But first, before Helen, Dan and myself get into the film, let's uh, listen to the people who made it. So I sat down recently in London with the directors of the movie, Anthony Russo and Joe Russo, for a spoiler-filled chat, and then I caught up with Marvel's big cheese himself, Kevin Feige, for... Uh, more spoilerific stuff, a little bit of an eye on the future, as well as the events of Captain America Civil War. So this will take about 45, 50, 55 minutes, thereabouts, and then we'll have at it. The first interview will be the Russos, Anthony and Joe. The first voice you're going to hear, I believe, is Anthony Russo. Just to clarify, the person who plays Gozi Agbo is Joe Russo. So we start off by talking about Gozi Agbo, and Gozi Agbo is Joe Russo. So that's how you can tell the Russos apart. And the next voice you hear after that will be Kevin Feige. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Anthony Russo and Joe Russo, uh, or should I say, Gozi Agbo. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what is yeah. that about? Uh, that is, a, it's a joke that started years ago. Uh, Anthony and I were working in a comedy troupe that uh, we had formed in college, and we had created a character who wrote a mock skating review of the comedy show named uh, Gozi Agbo in the comment (laughs) section of the uh, local uh, university newspaper. Right. Uh, And then uh, it's just become a weird pseudonym. And, um, you know, so whenever I uh, I cameo, I I use uh, the name Gozi Agbo as the... uh, Okay. I think we just pulled the name out of the phone book in Cleveland. (laughs) (laughs) It's an amazing name. And uh, two cameos in a row now, Joe. I mean, this is... This is uh, you're building up your own Stan Lee style. It's been years worth. I think it started. I don't even know where it started. It might have started. Oh, our first film pieces. I played one of the lead characters, uh-huh. uh, uh, purely out of necessity because uh, uh, you know we uh, we didn't know anything about the film business and we were in uh-huh. Cleveland at the time making the movie. Uh, and you know the first guy that we found who knew how to operate a, cam- a camera became the DP and. Uh-huh. Uh, I acted in it with a few of my buddies. Uh, our cousin played a part in the film uh, just because he had a big personality. Uh, so it was by necessity. So we uh, keep the uh, the joke running, um, uh, um, you know, or have kept it running over the last, like, 18 years. Fantastic. Okay, so now the big question is out of the way. Uh, <laughs> as, as you know, we're going to be talking spoilers in this. And I, I, th- I think it's a, it's a very interesting where you, where you end this movie, where you leave the characters. I think famously... Civil War, the, the comic book uh, arc, ends with the death of Cap. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think a few people thought that that's where you might be going with this movie. Was there ever any consideration about doing that? It just seemed like, an, it's a, frankly, it seemed like an easy ending to this film. Yeah. You know, uh, we thought a more complicated ending would be once that the characters had this very emotionally cathartic third act where, you know, um, um, Tony was really vested in killing uh, uh, Bucky and, um, uh, and, 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 and Cap and he you know, traded um, some pretty severe blows that... It would be more interesting to see how what the ramifications of that would be mm. moving forward uh, mm. on their relationship. Uh, and killing Cap uh, ends that uh, uh, conceptually. It, uh, you know, suddenly the, there's a guilt factor on, on Tony's part, yeah. uh, and uh, which we felt wasn't quite as complicated as uh, as these two characters having to deal with each other. Uh, moving forward we, we always thought of this movie as a, a family fight you know we had spent movies now watching these characters develop a relationship with one another and form a family unit with one another mm. and with, for the story for Civil War for us was what what happens when a, when a really horrible fight comes to that family as it does in, yeah. in life and so the, the more like Joe was saying the more difficult place to leave a family fight is can these relationships that were so important to everybody ever be repaired? Will they ever be the same again? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the road forward? Is this family broken permanently? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that to us seemed the most uh, exciting, dramatic place to leave the, the Avengers at the end of this film. Absolutely. Uh, or what's left of the Avengers. Yeah, what's left of them. Right? <laughs> I should yeah, say, because right. at the end, Tony, who is disillusioned and, and a bit broken by the end of the movie, uh, is in charge of uh, a, a roadie who's crippled and a disaffected vision. And that's it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, the Avengers. That's the Avengers yeah. moving forward. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, that uh, was yeah. conceptually, that was, you know, look, we want to challenge ourselves. We want to challenge the audience. We want to make decisions that we think have real ramifications and that mm. there are real stakes in the world. Uh, and, uh, and when you have a falling out, that's typically what happens is uh, you, uh, you become isolated. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and Cap, where you leave Steve in the movie is, is very interesting as well. He is, to my mind, a sort of Hannibal Smith in charge of his very own A-team now. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you, you know, if people have problems and they need someone can yeah. help to help, can Steve and his team come to the rescue? He's a full-blown or? insurgent. And yeah. we, you know, again, we, we thought if we were going to tackle a third Captain America film, what was the journey that we wanted to take the character on? This is a trilogy. Mm. And, uh, and we thought, well, the most interesting thing that you could do with the character is take him uh, from a patriot in the first film and, and leave him as an as a, and insurgent in the third movie, mm. and how do you track that arc? And and we, you know, we we had storytelling in Winter Soldier, where Cap learns not to trust power structures that they yeah. can be corrupted, yeah. uh, and uh, and he learns a hard lesson that the modern world is uh, is um, is not black and white, uh, is not as black and white as uh, as as the fight that he had in uh, in the first film. Mm. So I think um, um, you know the. Uh, uh, the, this third film puts him in a very uh, a civil war, uh, put him in a, a very emotional place where he was forced to choose between his individuality mm. and uh, and uh, you know what is perceived to be the collective uh, greater good. Um, uh, you know the conflict uh, of the film is between his old family and his new family, yeah. and uh, and there certainly is something that he longs for mm-hmm. uh, uh, in respect to uh, uh, the simpler times uh, that his old family represents for him, uh, and he and Tony uh, have never had a, a you know a great relationship. No, uh, so uh, it's not it's not that complicated of a decision for him. Absolutely, but. Um 
Steve makes some very, very interesting decisions in this movie. And Simo has a line where he says, you know, essentially there's, there's one flaw to Steve, which is there's a bit of green in the blue of the eyes. Um, but there are several flaws to Steve in this movie. He's not the cut and dried black and white uh, heroic character that, that we have, we've come to know. At one point, Rhodey calls him dangerously arrogant. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's, some, there's something to that. There's, there's substance to that. How, how important was it for you to have uh, a, a Steve who dealt in shades of grey? Well, it was critically important. I mean, look, on a storytelling level, we love these stories, we love these characters, but it, it is so important to us to bring them to new places, places we haven't seen them go yet. So for Joe and I, in exploring... The Captain America character. I mean, we were really struck by the idea that, look, here's a character who's always made the decision to serve others first. That's been his mission in life. Mm -hmm. It's part of his superhero power. And in fact, he serves others. We wanted to take him to a place in life where he he was for the first time going to make a decision to serve himself first, Mm -hmm. put his own personal needs ahead of any sense of collective uh, uh, virtue or value and we feel like it's a very human place to take the character and we just you know it's it it was really mu- very much at the heart of like the, our whole concept for what this film would be mm-hmm. so um cap goes there in this movie and it's it's very surprising to all of us and it's like we're, you know at the end of the movie is he even still captain america i think is a valid question now that yeah. he's gone there yeah you know? well not just that he's gone there but he's he's deliberately uh, made a choice to leave the shield behind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was interesting because that, that says to me that Steve, at that moment in his life, recognizes the mistakes he's made and recognizes that perhaps at this moment in time, he's not worthy of that shield. Is that right? And it signifies the internal conflict that he has. Uh, you know, he's been searching for an identity in the modern world. Uh, and I think, uh, um, you know, the choice he made to become Captain America as I was talking about earlier, was was made in a very specific time, mm. a much more black and white time. Oh, absolutely. Can he fulfill the concept of that character uh, in today's world? Does he want to? Uh, and does he identify with uh, what's being asked of him? Mm. And ultimately, at the end of the film, uh, dropping the shield is, is a rejection mm. of uh, of the Captain America identity uh, and, an, and an embracing uh, and a choice to embrace the Steve Rogers identity. But at the same time, there is a, a, a an olive branch. Is that what they call it? Um, I've seen it a lot of times. <laughs> there is an olive branch extended at the end of the film when Steve sends the the letter and the and the phone to Tony. So that you've left the door open. And the end of the film, of course, with Steve. That that you know, yeah. If you if you need me, I'll be there. Yeah. Which feels like a very Steve Rogers thing to say. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. He at the end of the day, he is still Steve Rogers. His core is intact. He he may have betrayed Tony. He may have he may have lied to Tony. Mm. Um, but he's, you know, he's sort of big enough to own that and to, to apologize for it and to ask for, you know, not, he doesn't necessarily apologize for the choices that he's made, but he does, he does express regret to the fact that he hurt Tony mm. and acknowledges that and hopes, you know, definitely he, there's a hope extended that they could somehow yeah. repair or connect in the future. Now, who knows on Tony's part, how that will be received. We don't really go there at the end of the movie, but mm. there's a, there, if these guys do have a road back toward some sort of relationship with one another, it does remain a complicated one. Steve Rogers is always a big enough man to own his own mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he does at the end of the film. Absolutely. Uh, and you talk about the, the betrayal or the lying to uh, Tony um, about the death of his parents, which is a huge uh, emotional time bomb 
that's been ticking away for a long, long time in the in the MCU. Right from the beginning of Iron Man One, we know that Howard Maria Stark died in a car crash. Uh, you remind us of it again in Winter Soldier, and you imply, I think, in Winter Soldier, in that uh, solo montage that we imply. That it's, it's, you know, I think there's but, a shot that separates the Winter Soldier from the f- photo of the of, yeah. of, of Howard Stark dead in his car. Zola is cer- certainly suggesting that you know they have been behind these things, and the Winter Soldier was their tool. Mm-hmm. You know, so Cap reasonably can you know he either knows that it was the Winter Soldier or he reasonably suspects it might have been mm-hmm. and he chooses to reveal none of that information to Tony yeah because he's trying to protect his friend I mean Steve's motivation is that I, I still believe that there is a human being inside the Winter Soldier mm-hmm. that deserves not to be shot down like a dog mm-hmm. and I, I want to protect him as much as I can to try to get him into a safe place and so Cap is is conceals that information to to try to protect Tony I mean, he, uh, Bucky he he you know he knows he can predict what Tony's response will be and it's exactly what his response is in the film yeah absolutely but at what point did you know that the death of the Starks was so pivotal and, and Bucky's involvement did that evolve naturally from Winter Soldier did you we, know at the time it of Winter did, Soldier and the and fact we, that yeah. we had laid those seeds in Winter Soldier really allowed us to uh, um, conceive of Civil War because look you know we're not tr- doing direct adaptations of the comics we're, of course, we're borrowing yeah. concepts from them concepts that are applicable in some way to the stories that we're telling in the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, this movie was very, very difficult to crack. I think it's probably the hardest thing that we've ever worked on, just the, in terms of the structure of it. There's a lot yeah. to balance in it. You're trying to balance Cap and Tony. You want to make sure that both are, you know, we thought the most complicated story we could tell is that both were endorsed uh, throughout the movie and both alternately played protagonist and antagonist yep. in the film, that both are flawed, that both have very emotional motivations. You're balancing all these other characters, all the tones that are coming into the film. So, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it, it was a lot of work. And I think... Um, uh, you know the when we when we lit on the core concept that we can make the winter soldier the the um the pivotal point yeah mm-hmm. yeah the pivotal piece of connective tissue yeah uh and that that the, that the civil war could become a very emotionally motivated uh a story uh that's when we th- we thought that we could we could we could fulfill the concept uh, in the cinematic universe mm-hmm. uh, in, in a way that would be satisfying. That and we knew sense. we look at we knew the Cap's greatest devotion was this idea that he would sacrifice anything to save whatever was left of his friend yeah. within the Winter Soldier. So we, we knew we had Cap in that place of, de, of devotion and motivation. And so, yeah, the whole story broke open when we were able to put that in direct opposition to something that's equally as mo- emotionally motivating for Tony Stark. And watching yeah. Ultron coming out of it and going, you know, there's, there could be, if you wanted to continue Tony's story, there could certainly be an incredible amount of guilt. Uh, you know, and and sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of I think what's fun about Civil War is that he and Cap Dosi Do. You know, mm-hmm. Cap is. Uh, you, you would expect that Cap is a guy who understands a chain of command uh, would endorse the notion of um, of um, regulation. Yeah, and that Tony, who told the government to uh, screw off in uh, <laughs> Iron Man Two, would. Uh, would want nothing to do with it, but yeah. um, circumstance would have it. Uh, in, in you know, in the previous films, uh, there was groundwork laid that allowed us to to take the characters in, in different directions again, mm-hmm. with the intent to surprise the audience and um, and to you know avoid predictability. 
I, th- I think Downey's uh, spectacular in the film. I think he's as good as he has been as Tony Stark, which, given this is sixth time around, is mm-hmm. is pretty amazing. Yeah, well, I think there's something very limit uh, liberating to actors. You know, uh, George Clooney uh, once told us this that when he played a small role in our our first feature, Welcome to Collinwood. And uh, I think we were talking to him one time and said, oh, so, you know, we're so sad we didn't have a bigger role in the movie for you. And he goes, are you kidding me? He goes, my job as a leading man is to let show up and let everybody else steal the scene. That's your job. <laughs> He's like, now I get to show up and steal the scene because I don't have to carry the weight of the story on my shoulders. Yeah. You know, I think Tony Stark had a similar, you know, Downey had a similar, similar liberty in this movie in the sense that Caps was primarily responsible for the spine of the film. So he got to go to more unconventional places as a character, perhaps darker places, more unpredictable places. Yeah. And I think that really freed him up on a performance level to do something very complex. Yeah. Uh, we were very excited by that opportunity opportunity and, and Downey really ran with it. Absolutely. Um, the, the, right from the off, when you dropped the bombshell that he and Pepper have, uh, are on a break, um, now whether that was motivated, I don't know whether Gwyneth Paltrow shot anything or whether you, you cut it out or... Uh, or no, it's a rumor that she had shot something on the film, but that wasn't true. That was just the, a rumor. the intent was always to put Tony in a very vulnerable place. And we mm-hmm. thought by stripping everything out of his life and you know making the ramifications of Ultron felt on a very personal level, uh, that uh, that he would be off balance, and we really needed it. We knew that we needed him off balance to behave the way that he was going to behave in the third act of the movie. Mm. Uh, you know, he he's lost Pepper. Uh, he's feeling an incredible amount of guilt. He's challenged by the mother of a dead son, mm. uh, and uh, and that's, the burden of that is laid at his feet. Uh, and uh, and and you know and you know he he certainly has a. Um, you know, a very uh, cathartic uh, connection to uh, uh, the death of his parents is highly emotional for him. Mm. Uh, um, and he never resolves certain issues with his father that uh, that I think, again, keep him off balance as a character. So mm. the movie really tries to dig at, you know, all the all the trigger points, mm. emotional trigger points uh, for Tony Stark. Uh, so that by the time he shows up in that third act and, and watches that video, yeah, uh, that uh, that you know um, his emotions will will supersede his um, his logic. But in, in in a crowded movie, we decided early on in the development process that we could make the fact that uh, Pepper had left him resonant emotionally without actually having a scene with her in the film. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, did you lose anything from the from from the film that you're willing to very, share at this very point? Very little, time? very very literally little, yeah. maybe two scenes we can think of. I mean, we are Joe and I are very very specific and careful with how we treat the opportunity of production. I mean, it's a it's an amazing uh, op- opportunity where you have an immense amount of resources and people and money is being spent like flying out the door nonstop. <laughs> so everything we shoot, you know, everything we spend time shooting, we want to end up in the movie. So we're very careful about moving into production with a script that's in a condition of you know it, it is in the condition we really want to see the movie in mm. and we have a great relationship with Marcus and McFeely so we're able to really develop the script to that that point with them uh, so you know remarkably on both Winter Soldier and Civil War the final edit of the movie is pretty close to the final uh, uh, draft of the script before production I think, uh, I think we're, we're about 10 minutes shorter than our director's cut okay. most wow. of that 10 minutes just comes from squeezing scenes down to like shorter versions of scenes uh-huh. rather than eliminating Scene. There's no huge musical number just sitting on the cutting room no. floor. No, there's a little scene between uh, Black Panther and Black Widow where they have a short conversation in the op center. You know, there's stuff like that. It's okay. not really uh, nothing nothing sexy. So. <laughs> okay. Um, a very, very quick digression before I get on to um, Simo and, uh, and the airport fight. Um, in, the, in the trailer, 
uh, during the Sokovia Accords sequence. Uh, in the trailer, Tony isn't sitting behind Cap, but he is in the film. So was Robert there or was he inserted later on in that sequence? Or? In the Accords sequence when yeah. Ross is speaking to them yeah. about the Accords? No, that must have just been a different camera angle. He was always okay. in the scene. We, we shot this scene with all the actors there. But it's uh, very, uh, we make very specific choices in the trailers yeah. to limit what exposure you have to certain characters so that there's a natural progression of discovery uh, and excitement about who's in the movie. So we, yeah. we do paint characters out of sequences mm. uh, um, in trailers uh, just to, uh, for subterfuge. Yeah, that, yeah, that certainly yeah. happened yeah. with the splash panel with the uh, scene where all the characters fight <laughs> yeah. each other. Yeah, so. um, we'll get on to that in, in a second, that, that amazing sequence. But um, that's Toxemo, who is a fascinating uh, villain. I mean, I'm, I, I, yeah, I get, yeah, he is a villain because he kills lots of people. Um, but uh, he's, a, he's a guy. He's just a guy, albeit one with special forces training. But again, was that important to you to put someone up against these living gods? Invaluable. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We, we know. Look, at part of this movie was us saying to ourselves, OK, the genre has gotten to a point now and perhaps the Marvel Cinematic Universe has gotten to a point now where the audiences are sensing the patterns that are at play in the genre. And Joe and I have always been about how do we subvert genre? That's something that we've played with through our, our entire creative careers as filmmakers from our very first movie, Welcome to Collinwood, through our TV work, etc., so finding ways to subvert uh, uh, genre expectations, like taking the ending of the movie to a place that was a very personal ending uh, uh, between these three characters, as opposed to like sort of some big battle where you vanquish the villain, yeah. was very important to us. And, and the same thing in our approach to the villain in this movie, even though he does have special forces training, mm. we very much thought of him as an everyman. And we th- you know, thought of him <laughs> now, like this guy is smart enough to know I cannot overpower these people. I've seen these people fight enough battles now where I know I can't win. So, but what I can do is I can figure out ways to undermine them. And I can study the Hydra files that have been released online. And I can try to decipher, look for clues in those files that I could look for a, a chink in their armor. And he's a guy who's very, very emotionally driven for revenge. And he finds a weak spot. Uh, because he has a specific level of experience and he has a very, very strong motivation to find mm-hmm. it. And he goes at the Avengers, I think, in a, in a way that no villain has up to this point, in a mo- more powerful way than any villain has at this point. He tries to destroy them from within. Um, and that, yeah, that was very much part of our entire approach to subversion in terms of what you expect out of superhero yeah. movies was, mm-hmm. was the Zemo. And he's very much lurking on the edges. He's very much almost Absolutely. in his own film. Yeah, he is. He's an allegorical villain. Uh, and... Uh, you know, he there's a there's a a sense of inevitability to the, to the character. You're watching the movie, you understand at some point he's going to intersect, but we hold it off for so long that yeah. you know you really start to question whether he will intersect with I the mean, plot. Yeah. This is a superhero movie where the lead character never actually confronts the villain physically where even the second league iron man never confronts the villain uh the only person that actually physically confronts the villain is black panther and all Mm -hmm. black panther does is prevent the villain from killing himself yeah you know so it's a very very unconventional showdown between superheroes and a villain some ways you could say it's zemo's movie (laughs) (laughs) absolutely i mean and the the decision to have uh to have t'challa at the end talk to uh talk to zemo um, you've you've, meant, you've you've intimated there why you did that, but can you talk a little bit a little bit more about about that? Because again, I mean, the expectation I think going into that is that somehow Black Panther will get involved in the in the showdown. Yeah, that, I mean, look, that was always the most emotionally resonant, one of the most emotionally resonant parts of the film for us. This idea 
that these people were all driven by a sense of revenge, whether it be Tony or the people who had been wronged by the Avengers. Um, they were all united in this, like, we need to correct an injustice in the past by some sort of angry, violent sort of action. Um, and, and T'Challa is driven by that through, through much of the film himself. Mm. Uh, and the idea that he could come to a place of, of revelation uh, and, and see the sort of like the road that that is leading everybody to and, and have a moment where he stops himself and chooses another road at the end, yeah. a, a road that's sort of, you know, you know, we'll, we'll certainly put, you know, it doesn't give Zemo the easy out, you know, no. um, and also it, it may be a harder choice for him, but it's the right choice. And, uh, and Chadwick Boseman in the role is very still and very secure in mm-hmm. himself, yeah. uh, even though he's there's there's turmoil under the surface. And he's unlike any of the heroes I think we've seen yep. in the MCU, even Vision. Um can you, it was a deliberate decision by you, or did Chadwick bring that to that stillness to the the character? Absolutely, I think he was a uh, he's a real method actor, Chadwick, and I think you know um, he brings an intensity and a regality uh, to the role that uh, it doesn't exist anywhere else in the Marvel universe, and I think mm. it's important um, uh, with the casting moving forward that we're constantly diversifying, um, uh, and that we're diversifying on a tonal level, execution level. Uh, and that, uh, you know, as characters are introduced, their energy uh, is distinctly different from other characters, which creates good conflict and good uh, drama. Mm-hmm. Um, so he brought something very different, uh, I think, to the Marvel Universe. I mean, Chadwick is American and he crafted a very, very interesting, specific African accent for the yeah. character. And he's the kind of actor who basically for the entire run of, of our production, he spoke in that accent, whether he was on camera or not. Oh, wow. He's that okay. kind of an actor. He has yeah. a very specific uh uh, process that he crafts and, and the way he uses it in the performance and it's a very very intense performance yeah um, just going back very very quickly to Simo um, how complicated was it to make sure that uh, his his plan added up I mean he seems to know December 16th 1991 is a very important date but does he know why uh, he I think that he, he in our minds he suspected why okay. it's you not dissimilar yeah. to what Cap saw in the Winter Soldier he's found something in those files where he put two and two together and, uh, and he's operating under the strong assumption that uh, the Winter Soldier had killed the Starks. Mm. Uh, and he knows that if he can find that key piece of information... And proof. Uh, yeah. And proof that uh, this might be a, a very volatile uh, piece of information to introduce the Avengers. Mm. He doesn't get that, obviously, until he reaches the, the bunker. And That's right. The and once he gets... He's, in all essence, Zemo in the movie is on a suicide mission. Yeah. He is either going to succeed or fail. Yeah. Uh, and he's and his intent is to die either way uh, because uh, because he, he's so angry. He's so angry, but he he you know, he's fulfilling his destiny. He's mm-hmm. fulfilling the, you know, the promise that he made to himself to avenge his family. Uh, he calls in uh, the breakfast order to the hotel, uh, presumably to trigger. Tony Stark upload to the police yeah. yes I and mean, he kills Gozi Agbo man he needs to <laughs> exactly. he needs to go down it's uh, but yeah so, so Tony will, will show up as well um, there's so much to talk about but um, one of the key words used to trigger Bucky is homecoming is that a nod to a future film or is that just coincidence <laughs> you know Mar- nobody knows the, Mar- uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe better than Marcus and McFeely Mm-hmm. Those like guys, encyclopedias. Yeah, they have written more of it than any other writers, and they are, uh, they are. Uh, if you're looking for uh, really latent surprises, you know, those are the guys to to find it. Yeah, 
Okay, so we can expect future films to be called Freight Car and uh, <laughs> Rusted. And yeah. <laughs> okay, interesting. Uh, and let's talk about the the airport fight, uh, the splash panel sequence, as you guys have called it. How bloody difficult was it to, to coordinate that to make sure that everyone was was fighting someone? And when you have characters like Vision and Scarlet Witch. How do you make sure that it's just not over in five seconds? I mean, that, that sequence was massively complicated. But, you know, look, for Joe and I, we always say, like, we are driven through action by a sense of narrative and character. You know, and we're always running at that. And those are our turning points in the action that we, we structure all our action around. Um, the, the interesting thing about that sequence is, well, you nominally have one side versus another side. And the agenda is uh, Cap's side needs to get to Siberia to stop the super soldiers and they need to get out of there as fast as they can. And Tony's side needs to stop them and capture them or General Ross is going to go after them in a, in a much more sloppy, dangerous way. Yeah. So th- those are your uber objectives. But then there, every single character in that sequence has a personal motivation in that fight that has, you know, that is sometimes loosely correlated to what the team objectives are and sometimes mm-hmm. not. I mean, for instance, Black Panther, Black Panther only kills, cares about killing Winter Soldier. Yeah. You know, um, Vision is sort of really interested in trying to reconcile the deteriorating relationship that's been going on between him and Scarlet Witch. Yeah. And now they're adversaries in the fight. You know, Spider-Man just really wants to impress Mr. Stark. You know, it's like every <laughs> everybody has a different agenda there uh, that is driving them through the fight as as well as their overarching agenda. So, like, just on a storytelling level, it was very complicated for us to sort of craft the narrative, so to speak, in, yeah. the, in that sequence yeah. that we could sling all this outrageous action around. It took us about two years from Sarah to finish for work on that sequence starting with the script phase executing it while we were shooting we were constantly assessing and watching what we'd shot we'd shot it in pieces over the course of the entire film Mm -hmm. Uh, and then in post cutting it together going back picking up reshoots altering some of the VFX Uh, and then you know to talk for a second about Vision and Scarlet Witch Mm. You know, for us as, as, as storytellers, it's very important that um, that all char- that that every character, that, that no character, be too powerful. That they have some internal flaw that uh, uh, or insecurity or issue that they're struggling with. Uh, that even if they they do possess a potential for great power, uh, can limit that power. Mm. Um, for us, it just makes the characters more interesting. And uh, um, you know, I think uh, in the film, Wanda really is dealing with a very, you know. Uh, um, you know, uh, heavy burden uh, um, that uh, that opening sequence is uh, is you know a, a, it's a horrible thing for somebody like yep. her to have to deal with, Absolutely. and uh, and I think you know um, she uh, she's self uh, she's self regulating uh, for that reason, and uh, and vision uh, you know our interpretation of that character is is that uh, you know. He he floats by altering uh, his his um, his matter his uh, um, his molecular makeup uh, by either becoming um, by disapparating or um, or becoming uh, incredibly dense mm. uh, and so his movement is a little bit more limited in our interpretation of the character. Okay, uh, and uh, and you'll notice that uh, you know he does a lot of floating around. Yes, um, rather rather than flying. Uh, again, this is an attempt to. Um, you know, from our perspective, to limit his power base, hmm. um, and he certainly can't use the gem on anyone. Uh, <laughs> as you see, there are you know, whenever he uses it, there's intense um, yeah. ramifications for it. So, uh, you know, he is, I think, um, you know, reconsidering his stance hmm. uh, in that sequence based on his encounter with Clint and Wanda and the way that Wanda treated him, uh, and uh, and you know. 
and is smart enough to understand he's the smartest of all the characters mm. that uh, that they def- that they are heading for catastrophe and that events are um, uh, you know altering at a, at at a radical pace and that uh, this is uh, this has potential to not end well. Uh, hence, you know, when he lands and, and picks Wanda's head off the ground and says, "It's as I said, catastrophe." Yeah. Uh, so I think both of them are moving through that sequence in a way where you know they're um, they're 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 struggling with their own issues uh, uh, and and their issues with each other mm. uh, less so than they're struggling with uh, you know the the arc of uh, of the of the fight itself. Uh, giant man, um, the big surprise of the movie, unless of course you watch Lego playsets. But um, right. <laughs> apart from that, <laughs> the big surprise of the movie. Uh, how difficult was it to pull off without? Because it, it's it's such a great moment, but it could have been. Ridiculous. <laughs> uh, a- absolutely. And I think it's, you know, the, the whole sequence builds to that revelation. Uh, you know, the, that sequence, if you want to, um, uh, pick, you know, look at it and, and study it, is it's, it's a three-act structure. The, yeah. the battle itself is a three-act structure. And, uh, you know, he that that's the leading you into the third act of the fight is the revelation. That it's a big turning mm-hmm. point. It's that the, the giant man shows up, and that's, the, that's what allows Cap that opportunity to escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the truth is we thought about a a lot of ways that we could swing the fight at that critical moment. We considered many other options other than Giant Man. We just couldn't come up with an idea that we felt was as fun and sexy and surprising as Giant Man. Uh, so we kept coming back to it. You know. Are you big Empire Strikes Back fans, or is <laughs> yes, yeah, sir? Yeah. I, uh, I I sat I, in yeah. the theater when I was I don't know ten years old uh, and watched the movie uh, six times in a row. So it's a <laughs> uh, it's a seminal film in our uh, in our, our cinematic upbringing. And frankly, we you know we always pitched what we wanted to do with Civil War uh, as as an Empire Strikes Back beat within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. For us, it was very much that sort of downbeat. A deconstructionist, uh, you know, uh, yeah. um, a film that uh, that allows you to pick things apart Tears before things trying down, to put them back yeah, together. Before you build them back up. Does that mean Infinity War is Return of the Jedi? Does that mean you can expect? <laughs> Ewoks. Ewoks. Yes, lots of Ewoks. I think the <laughs> that's level... That's why there's so many characters. You know, the thing, that's, <laughs> thing that's really valuable to us as storytellers, and we have great respect for Marvel fans because they've committed a lot of time, energy... Uh, and passion and emotion mm-hmm. into these characters over the years, but the you know all, so so ultimately we do want to take everybody on a great journey. But um, you know it's it's important to us that a level of stakes exist in the storytelling mm-hmm. um, you know, that reflects uh, uh, reality and um, as much as possible in a superhero movie, uh, and uh, and that you know there that there are that the characters will pay a price, and you know. Uh, uh, moving into Infinity War um, uh, as culmination films uh, yeah. for everything that's preceded them, uh, there will certainly be uh, a, a transition uh, um, from the first three phases into the next few phases, where you know cycles will will come to an end and other cycles will begin. So uh, it's you know it's it's important. So I don't necessarily know that it, you can call it a Return of the Jedi moment uh, because it's not capping the. Um, uh, the storytelling it's mm-hmm. it's 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 altering it mm-hmm. uh significantly um uh, but the universe will still move forward from there mm-hmm. uh so uh, and i think that's what's unique about it and exciting just very very quickly because uh, you guys do have to go um uh on the subject of infinity war i know you're not going to be able to say much at this point in time but there's about 847 different characters <laughs> roughly <laughs> in play at this point but it feels to me that it might be almost a continuation thematically of 
the cap arc? Uh, do you see it as, as almost in a way cap Ford or Iron Man four? How do you how do you we, we look at for Joe and I? We definitely think about Winter Soldier, Civil War, and Infinity War as a, a continuous narrative movement on, on, on the part of our part as storytellers. We see we see that unity and a through line there that we're working with. And yes, Captain, there is no cap four plan. So Captain America's story is certainly moving forward and going to be told the next chapter of story in in Infinity War. Yeah. Um, so yeah, very much that's uh but you know that's that that's what's the, the same thing is at work for many of the other Marvel characters as well including Iron Man. So those movies are there tend to be a culmination and like Joe said there will be a a huge cycle change when those movies occur that will include some endings and some new beginnings and some mm. continuations. And the last thing uh, before uh, I get dragged out of here and it is our very own post credit sting which is your post credit sting which is uh, Bucky's decision to put himself back in ice in Wakanda, which is which is very interesting as well. Can you talk about that sequence and, and what for you that sets up? What sure. that sets up for us, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the character is making a decision, which is a uh, it's a very honest decision, and it's also a noble decision. Mm. That uh, that that you know there is a part of him that is corrupt, or can be corrupted, and can be controlled, and he feels like the only the only way to short of you know death. Uh, to to deal with that until it, it you know the issue can be resolved is to is to put himself back in stasis. Mm. We also uh, in, in a very protected environment, yeah. not only where the world is protected from him, but he is protected from the world. And you know, T'Challa certainly goes on a journey in the movie of uh, self discovery. Mm. And um, I think you know Bucky represents, uh, as he says, a victim. Uh, 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 in the same way that his father was a victim, we really uh, liked how that completed T'Challa's arc. You know, the sense of the, the sense of that he knew he was chasing the wrong man through the movie, and that he made people suffer as a result of it, and then mm-hmm. he could tr- somehow try to correct that. And then I think the other thing that, on a storytelling level, that was really exciting for us in that tag is this notion that. He also feels like he owes Cap, and and he's basically harboring this guy that is wanted by Ross and Tony and the, with the remaining Avengers, and that he's willing to fight if if people come for him, which yeah. is a very sort of pregnant, exciting, uh, badass beat. Us, so, yeah. <laughs> and you get to establish a little bit of Wakanda. Yeah, yeah. just a little taste. Just a yeah. little, yeah. little bit, a little yeah. bit. Fantastic. Guys, I could talk to you all day. I've got, as you can see, uh, 8 million questions. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for your time, uh, Anthony. Gozi, <laughs> Joe, you. thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, Great thank questions. You so really appreciate yeah. it, Chris. Thank you. Kevin Feige, how are you, sir? I'm very good, Chris. Thank you. Excellent. Um, congratulations on the film. Thank you. Uh, 13 films in, and you're getting better. How is that happening? What, are you, what sort of dark magic are you conjuring up over there at Marvel Studios? Well, I, not much dark magic other than what's happening outside uh, right now. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I mean, there are two, there are two uh, obvious answers. One is... The more the audience is invested in the characters, the mm. deeper you can take them emotionally with their struggles. Um, and that's certainly what we wanted to do with this movie. And the other answer is um, the more films you make, the more filmmakers and teams you work with, and the more you start to hone in on a great partnership. Mm. And certainly with uh, um, Chris Marcus, Steve McFeely, and Joe and Anthony Russo, yeah. we have an amazing quartet there that uh, – that, um, uh, you know, have done a you know, pretty miraculous task and are working, although we won't talk about it today, on two more very miraculous tasks uh, <laughs> ahead of them with the, with the next two Avengers films. Yeah. Um, and it really is it really is comforting to know that uh, that, um, you know, we have we have built such an amazing team over the years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uh, you, you talked about this film in the past as 
being as cataclysmic or as important for the MCU as Winter Soldier with the dissolution of S.H.I.E.L.D. And uh, it is that. Because uh, at the end of this movie, the Avengers are split apart completely into two. Uh, Tony is in charge of, as far as I can tell, two Avengers. One of whom can no longer walk. The other one is completely, his head is gone, the vision's head. He's completely affected by the by the offence of, of the airport fight. Um, and then there's Steve, who's going to be running around Rogue with his very own A-team, presumably. Right. Um, can you talk about the decision to end the movie where you ended it? Um, well... Joan Anthony probably spoke about this too with you. And yeah. it was, uh, it was, there was a, there was an internal debate about, about that for a long time. Um, we were all in sync on the notion of, of ending it, um, not perfectly that doing justice to the storyline of civil war meant things don't get resolved easily. They can't just simply put aside their differences and team up in the third act and, and fight the bad guy. Um, and, and there were people sort of within, within the organization that, that were advocating doing that. Yeah. And, uh, and um, we believe very strongly that that would have destroyed the entire movie yeah. <laughs> to, to do that. Um, and, uh, and thankfully, Joan Anthony, you know, were very vocal and very much, and very much uh, um, believe that as well. It also was knowing where we were heading. We knew that we had a guy named Thanos who gets a glove and gets a bunch of jewels and does mm-hmm. a bunch of evil things with that, with that glove. Um, that wouldn't it be interesting that when on the eve of encountering their biggest opponent yeah. and the biggest um, challenge that they had ever had ever um, gone up against, that they were completely fractured, that they were completely um, disassembled yeah. by that point. That seemed dramatically interesting. Um, so it worked in two ways. It worked as an honest and truthful and only way to end the story in which uh, in which they had been torn apart mm-hmm. and also will serve us well as we as we start to build towards um, in their next uh, in their next outing. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that how are they going to manage when they're all completely um Separated when when their biggest foe comes knocking at the door. That's not a spoiler. He doesn't really knock at the door, but you get the idea. I imagine Thanos doesn't knock. No, he's not a knocking guy. He's not the one who knocks. That's right. I know you probably can't say much about Homecoming, but Tony's presence in that movie is very interesting. They've already got a, a chemistry. They've already got a history uh, established. Um, is it a big role for Tony? Can we expect to see a lot of uh, RDJ in this one? Well, you're right. We don't want to talk too much about it, but but mm. but as I've as I've said, this is a movie that that while fully a Sony movie, and and Amy Pascal is is producing it with us, and Tom Rothman is is uh, being very supportive, uh, uh, running uh, uh, Sony, um, and uh, and allowing us to creatively produce the film. Um, that uh, uh, it, it takes place in the in the MCU. Mm. Uh, and that's one of the things that was unique other than just having a younger version of the character than we'd seen before. Um, having a Spider-Man that inhabits this cinematic universe is what makes it unique. It's getting increasingly freaky, by the, by the way, the uh, the young special effects that you were able to do. I mean, Michael Douglas was one thing in Ant-Man, but th- this is, I mean, you're giving uh, young Robert a serious close-up here. That was, uh, that was the last shot finaled in the movie out of wow. almost 3,000 shots. That was the final one. And, fun fact, it was Robert's birthday. <laughs> we finaled the headshot on, on Robert's birthday. Um, it is pretty, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And the, uh, this, the Starks, uh, the inclusion of the Starks, uh, Hope Davis as well, 
is just uh, is, is very very interesting and the, their death sequence is so brutal and shocking I thought I was watching Game of Thrones where wow. Starks are routinely murdered on a on, a, on an almost weekly basis um, the decision to have that, that death scene uh, to render it in such a visceral way visceral way was that it was the, initially the initial idea was to have a dragon land on the car and burn them <laughs> and burn them to death seems yeah I can see why you would maybe move away from that yeah yeah Fin Fang Fung, maybe it's not. It's not um, very gory. It's no. not very bloody, um, but it is visceral. Yeah, because you know them by that point. Mm-hmm. You know their connection to their son, who's watching it yeah. at this moment. Yeah, uh, and you know the person who's doing it. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it's a testament to, to 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 Joan Anthony and to Chris and Steve that they took something and, that you know on on a comparing it to Game of Thrones or anything on television, it is, it is not graphic in the least. Mm. But emotionally, it is crushing, yeah. which, is, which is, was the intention. Well, it's crushing because Tony has gone through his life not suspecting that they've been killed yeah. at all. And it's completely out of the blue. And for me, the bombshell was the fact that Steve knows. Mm-hmm. I mean, he maybe doesn't know it was quite that brutal, but he knows. And he has this incredible blind spot, which is his best friend, uh, Bucky. Uh, and it all comes together in that, in that one... In that one moment. I think it's my favorite moment in 13, in 13 MCU films. Yeah. Tony watching that video and yeah. the audience going through that process of, oh, that's what, why are we seeing this car again? Why have we seen this car on this road three times? Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that's why. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that really going out of our way to set up a finale in which, oh, I guess they'll get to this base and I guess there'll be five super soldiers and they'll have to fight these five. What? <laughs> They're gone. They're not there. Yeah. Twist. Yeah. Um, the whole movie was building to that, and and uh, and uh, uh, it's amazingly executed by by uh, by the Russos. Mm. That the conversations we had, you know, now a number of years ago around our conference room table about about the finale and how to make it different and how to have as many characters as any Avengers movie, maybe maybe more than any Avengers film, and yet have it end in a very personal, very different manner. Just going back to the idea of Civil War, um, in the comic, obviously, it's it's based around the idea of superhero registration. So superheroes with secret identities are, are a threat. That's not really something that drives the MCU, the idea of secret identities. No. All the Avengers are, are pretty much known. Peter Parker obviously has one. Um, and one thing I think a lot of people wanted to know was whether this movie would touch upon Daredevil in some way or touch upon some of the Netflix shows uh, where secret identities are in play. Was that ever a consideration? No, because that I'm not sure the first season of Daredevil had even come out by when we were initially um, developing this this story. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, uh, we knew that the registration act had to be different. We knew that we had to rely much more on the collateral damage element from the other films than on um, asking people to remove their masks. Because as you point out, nobody has secret identities. Mm-hmm. The MCU is founded on Tony Stark. Standing in front of a crowd of reporters saying, I am Iron Man. Yeah. Right. It's not it's not about secret identities. It's about oversight. Mm. Um, uh, so that was the driving uh, sense of uh, of uh, of what the conflict would be based on and naming it the Sokovia Accords after the giant country that was lifted into the air and dropped in uh, in Ultron seemed to make sense. And again, that's a that's a, a perfect example uh, of of the internal workings of the MCU. We had been working on Ultron. We had let Chris and Steve and Joan Anthony 
read those early drafts that Joss had on that film, look at early cuts of that film. So they knew what version of the characters they were inheriting and Mm -hmm. what version of the world they were inheriting. And it made great sense that 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 arguably Sokovia is the biggest example of collateral damage in the MCU up to this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And to and to use that as the backbone of what this conflict would be about Mm -hmm. um, would make sense. Is that to say that um, perhaps down the line we might see, I mean, people talk about the wider MCU and everything's connected, but uh, we might see some of the other characters from, obviously Coulson bled into TV from from films and sort of Peggy Carter, but we might see it bleed the other way. Do you think we'd ever see Daredevil in Infinity War, for example, or something uh, I, look, I think anything's possible. Mm-hmm. I think I think the most important thing for those shows, just as uh, is the most important thing for our individual movies, is that they stand apart yeah. and is that they can tell their own stories in their own way and not be tied into what's going to happen or what's already happened. And I think that's what's what's some of the genius of those Netflix shows is, yes, they're in the same universe, but boy, are they telling their own unique, very, very good storylines. Um, and I would not you know, want the movies to have to, to have to change or the shows to have to change mm. to accommodate one or the other. That being said, um, the fun is always, is always who's popping up where. So who knows, who knows what could happen? Who knows indeed. Uh, do you, Kevin Feige, know where Thor and Banner are right now? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. And so will you in November <laughs> of 2017. Um, obviously you have a, you have the, your eye on the chess pieces at all times. Uh, uh, Thor Ragnarok is a very, very interesting film. Where are you at right now in that one? Are you? Uh... Uh, the production office is open in uh, in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, our executive producer Brad Winderbaum uh, is is out there. Taika Waititi is out there. Our great uh, our great crews are out there. Um, Chris Hemsworth lives out there, so he's uh, <laughs> he's very close and very pleased with uh-huh. where we're shooting the film. Um, and the cast that has come together for that film, some of which has been announced, some of which has has not been. Mm. Um, is pretty amazing and it's pretty kind of is kind of a, a dream when when uh, cast, and, and most of them are new cast members to the to the cinematic universe yeah um uh and it's and it's very exciting so that film has come together if you look at what we did with with iron man 3 if you look at if you consider civil war which we do captain america 3 mm-hmm. we we really challenge ourselves when it comes to part three. You know, I heard the term many years ago, threequelitis. Uh, and I said, yeah, let's never get that. Um, uh, uh, so we usually look at a part three as the opportunity and the time to really change things up and to yes. really take characters to new places. Um, uh, tonally and geographically, there are a lot of different planets in Thor outside the, in Thor Ragnarok, outside of the nine realms okay. that we visit. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to share what, what's going on. But it's a, it's a long way out. But we, do, we, start filming, uh, we start filming in July. Fantastic. And Kate Blanchett, very excited. Tessa Thompson, very excited. Um, at the moment, there was a rumor going around that uh, no Natalie Portman this time around. Is that, is that something you can confirm? Or? I, uh, I can confirm that, yes. Okay. Which yes. is a, uh, an interesting decision to go and... Well, it's... it's uh, yeah, many reasons, many of which are, are are in the film. So you will you will see that. Um, but there are only there are only a couple scenes on Earth in this movie. Yeah. Majority ninety five percent of the movie takes place um, um, in the cosmos. <laughs> um, just a couple of last questions about uh, Civil War as well. Um, you set up uh, Black Panther. You set up T'Challa, who's a very very different character than anything we've seen in the MCU yeah. so far. Um, 
But you resisted the urge to introduce Doctor Strange. Was there a temptation at any point to throw him a scene or or mention him in no, some way? No, never, never came up. And again, the only reason we don't usually introduce characters in other movies first and then do their own movies. We usually do their own movie and then bring them and then bring them into into somebody else's movie. Um, and Panther was just very specific case um, mm. that we wanted a third party. Basically, we wanted somebody who was not naturally aligned with either Tony or Steve. And in fact, didn't necessarily have a stake in 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 the geopolitics of uh, of uh, the events that have occurred in the MCU, mm-hmm. with the exception of specifically what happens in this film, the opening uh, of the film in Lagos. And then of course what happens in, in, uh, Vienna with mm-hmm. the death of his father. Yeah. Um, so we really wanted somebody that, that could represent a, uh, a, uh, uh, somebody who's completely aligned in a different, in a different way. And, uh, and uh, T'Challa made the most sense mm. for that. He's got a really wonderful, quiet dignity. And you have to really connect with this character so quickly. And uh, the death of T'Chaka happens so quickly that yeah. for that to really connect with you, uh, you have to have someone who has a bit of a, a bit of emotional punch to him. Well, and Chadwick is amazing. And he was, and he was the only choice we ever had. And we were very lucky to, to call him. It all came together quite quickly to go from, from having the idea of including Black Panther in the development room to calling Chadwick to making a deal with him um, was, I mean, it felt like a week. I mean, it was very quick, um, mainly because we knew he was the right guy for us. And he was unbelievably excited to, uh, to get that phone call. It was one of the best phone calls we, we made. It was on the speaker phone in that conference room. He was in a, he was in a limo, either just going to or just coming from um, uh, one of the European premieres of, uh, of Get On Up. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, we said, have you ever heard of this character, Black Panther? And he's like, yes. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Uh, it was very great. It was it was fun. Um, I was talking to my wife, um, whose uh, parents are Nigerian, and she was loving the fact that in 2018 we're going to have a movie, a superhero movie that has an African lead. Uh, obviously, Chadwick is, is African American, but yes. uh, T'Challa is is an African lead, uh, which is a, a, a huge step for Marvel to take. Well, and it's and it's a, a step that that Marvel took, you know, many years ago in the in the comics as mm-hmm. well, and it felt like it's more than due time to to do that in the movie, and that's another cast that is coming together, um, that is uh, that is, um, you know, will be announced relatively soon, but is will be amongst the best ensembles we've ever we've ever uh, we've ever had, and ninety percent of the cast is either is uh, either African or African American. Mm-hmm. It, it seems that you're setting up that Bucky might be. We might see Bucky next in that movie. Uh, it remains to be seen. Okay. He's certainly he's certainly in stasis there somewhere. Whether he come, where and when he comes out of stasis, I'm not sure. <laughs> There's a poker face again. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Ryan Coogler is director. Can you talk about him very quickly? Uh, he's uh, he's amazing. I thought Creed was one of the best movies of of last year. Um, uh, pretty uh, pretty astounding uh, filmmaker. Um, and he is, uh, he's devoted himself hundred percent already to mm. the, to the film. He's co-writing it with a writer named Joe Robert Cole. And he's, uh, and he literally, I think is finishing up the first draft as we speak. <laughs> yeah. Cause he's meant to be talking to me at five 30. Is that true? Uh, yeah. About Creed. Don't worry. I won't be, uh, I won't be Don't take up too much. Don't Please worry. don't take too much of his time. <laughs> Tell him he's, <laughs> he literally it's supposed to turn it into three days. 20 minutes, 20 minutes. <laughs> I promise 20 minutes. And then two last things very, very quickly. Um, uh, Natasha in this movie is very interesting. And the last time we see her, she's, she's on the run. Uh, can you talk about her storyline in this movie, crafting that very, very quickly and where we might see her in future? 
Um, we will, we will, uh, we will see her when we see the majority of the Avengers again. Mm-hmm. Um, but her story, she she was interesting, and there was a lot of discussion about what side would she go on because she actually is aligned with both of them. Mm-hmm. She, we knew, she, hers was more emotional in terms of does she side with Steve? Does she side with? with Tony and it was less about siding with either of those people because she's very close to both of them. She's very close to, to Steve, as you see in this movie, as you saw in the, the winter soldier. Yeah. Um, uh, and she had, as is acknowledged in civil war, last time we saw her in front of a governmental uh, uh, panel, she was not very nice. See, she essentially told them to, uh, to, uh, to uh, 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 stick it yeah. and, and walked out. But, she is has learned to be, and I think has always been very pragmatic, and she realizes, as Tony did, that, and I think she even says in the film, it, that we stay together is more important than how we stay together. Mm. We also, though, wanted her to be torn, and for her, for her allegiance to be the most um, um, tentative, which is why you see, you know, she ends up she ends up realizing, and is the is the one character who realizes things are getting crazy in the uh, in the big airport fight, mm. and allows. Steve's Absolutely. and Bucky to get away. And uh, the last thing I've got to ask you is, uh, can you comment on Inhumans at the moment? Uh, what, what the situation is with, with that film? Uh, well, the only situation right now is that it is not going to be a part of Phase 3. Okay. Um, because Phase 3 increased in a very good way <laughs> um, uh, since we initially announced it. And when and where and how it pops up um, uh, remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. But it's characters we love. It's a storyline we love. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and we just we just didn't want to cram it in to a to a to an already quite full phase three. Okay, Kevin, I'll let you go. Thanks, I, I believe I have Captain America on the side. They'll take him. <laughs> All right, thanks. Fantastic. Okay, so that was Russo's. That was Kevin Feige, and now it's me, Helen, and Dan. We've got some readers' questions. Not a lot because we're recording this on April 29th. The movie has just opened in the UK. Helen saw it at midnight yes, last night for I the did. third time. Yes, I did. And you saw the second sting. The second sting, because it was not screened for critics. Because there might be more stings, we don't know. There could be. This felt like it might be it, but, you know. Okay. I just wondered maybe it had different stings in different countries. Oh, that's possible, yeah. That's entirely possible. So the second sting, which actually, I don't know why I'm telling anybody this, because readers will have seen it. It's only critics. Yeah, let's let's have a chat about it. But it's Spider-Man, Peter Parker, Uh back home in Manhattan after the events in Germany in Leipzig, and nursing a black eye and some bruises and trying to explain exactly what happened to Aunt May. Uh Um, And he basically says that a big boy called Steve from Brooklyn did it and ran away. Um, And he's also playing, as we meet him, with with a new watch. It looks a bit like a Fitbit, but it's clearly Stark technology because he accidentally pushes something or does something with it and lights come flying out of it. So he has to like stuff it in his armpit and hide it. But then when he plays with the lights again, it looks like a bat symbol signal but it's not it's not it's a spider symbol for a start but also it's clearly like a an interactive thing that does stuff because spider-man in the comics in the early days he used to have like a almost like gadgets and little stuff he he would carry and this sort of spider torch was one of those things that it it had for weird reasons it had his kind of face on it which is very egotistical so we have a few questions from readers which we will get to in due course but dan yeah let's start with you because of that statement you made in your five-star empire review in a way, I can't believe this is the first time we've given a, a movie five stars, a Marvel movie five stars. 
We came close, I believe, with the Avengers. Yeah, I think we did. And and Winter Soldier was, I think, I think another close call. But my, I mean, I hopefully explained this in the review, but my, my feeling was that it kind of has that same everything coming together, a kind of rewarding its audience feel that the Avengers had at that stage, you know, in, in the Marvel development. So that was kind of, you know, your big four coming together with all these great supporting characters to form eventually a team and deal with something huge. It has that feel to it. But at the same time, it has the really sort of, you know, street level, down to earth, sort of smart plotting feel of The Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. But what it doesn't have, and, and I, I reviewed The Winter Soldier actually at the time, and uh, I kind of went into one of my big problems with it, which was that kind of the thing. I think we've talked about it a lot in here the kind of the Marvel third act foible. The large thing over city. Large thing over city, lots of things flying around in the air and somewhere in the mix there's some magic stone or something. What I liked about this is it didn't do that and it it felt like the first time, even though it isn't, I mean obviously Ant-Man is is, is different, but uh, it felt fresher as a result to to have these characters in the mix to be treated in this way. I mean, as as an ensemble film, I think it's expertly handled, it's really well balanced. Mm -hmm. It takes itself seriously enough that the audience will take it seriously and it's got some very dark, very adult moments, I felt. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's got that sense of Marvel fun which obviously was lacking from a certain other uh, superhero fighting each we're, other We're not going to mention that one, that I was, don't think. That was released recently. Um, Deadpool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was no fun no in Deadpool. Fun in no yeah. fun whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and its, and its humour was rather more sophisticated than Deadpool's. So, um, <laughs> what? A man masturbating while wearing Crocs and sniffing a unicorn is not sophisticated? It's pretty sophisticated. I <laughs> yeah. mean, that's an unusual niche sort of a sophistication yeah. right there. Yeah, well, I, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's where I was coming from, really. It just felt like a blend of all the best things that, that Marvel have done so far uh-huh. with very, very little of the things that Marvel's weaker at. Okay. That didn't make grammatical sense, but you know what I'm getting at. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Thank you, professional writer, for, for, that, <laughs> oh. for that assessment. Our best selves are on the, on the page. Yeah. <laughs> On the page, as, as I just <laughs> as I just proved, she just proved our best selves are on the page. So would you absolutely definitively rank it? I mean, you've only seen it once at this point in time, hmm. Helen. Yeah, you weirdo. Yeah, <laughs> I, what? What are you doing? Having a life? Uh, I'll, I'll put my tickets to see it again on Sunday. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to be interested to see what you what you feel second time round. I'm sure I'll completely agree with the opinion that I put down no, on paper that's change. gone online and will be there forever with five stars on the bottom of it. Okay, no, people, no, I'm, I'm, I, I, I think the movie's fantastic. I, I just don't know for, if for me it is the best of the Marvel Studios movies, and I think Helen, you agree with me. For me, I, I, for me, I can't quite put it. I, to be honest, it's been it's been growing on me every time I've seen it. Mm. Um, but then so do the others, and I've seen them more often. I mean, some people might have watched Winter Soldier twice in the last fortnight. Not me. I don't know why you'd have that idea. Anyway, but I did love it, and I'm loving it a lot more every time I see it. And I yeah. just think it is that that fact that everybody gets something great to do. Everybody gets a great moment. Maybe yeah. maybe not a great moment for William Hurt, but like we don't care about him. He's nasty, but he's still um, good. He's still, he's still good. solid. Yeah. And I'm not. I'm not. This is not me slagging. I'm just saying like, he doesn't have like a big cool. Oh my goodness! Did you see that bit moment? Yeah. But I did like the sort of attempts to a humanise him, so he's not like a yeah. moustache twirling villain because he's got a hell of a moustache to twirl if he, he does, if he wished yeah. to do so. But the explanation about how he had a heart attack on a golf course that's a very human thing to do uh, obviously he's not pro the Avengers he's not an advocate of the Avengers but I do wonder about the logistics of a US Secretary of State running a big underwater 
prison. I'm not. As I well. think he was just visiting. Just visiting. Yeah, I think he, was he just seems visiting. to be the warden by the end. No, no, like, no, no, like no. It's fine. Bob Gunton in Shawshank Redemption. Anyway, so yeah, should we tackle some questions and then we can extrapolate from there and talk about other things as well? So here's the first question, which comes in from a reader. It is from Tom Trot via email. All these are via email because obviously if people put spoilers on Twitter, that's a bad thing. This person actually won the chance to see the film at the premiere, thanks to us. Oh, that's very nice. I wanted to ask you what side you think you you ultimately came down on. Should Cap have signed the accords or not? Tom Trott says, personally, I still can't decide. I'm not a huge fan of unilateral intervention without UN consent, but yet the film clearly sympathised with Cap's view that the safest hands are still our own. It's interesting that the film's real strength comes from this argument. And how will they possibly get over this in time for Infinity War Part 1? First bits first. Mm. So this is a film, we talked about this in a regular podcast, that all along has marketed itself on which side are you on, Team Cap or Team Iron Man. And honestly, I'm kind of more Team Iron Man than I am Team Cap by the end of the movie if I'm any team, because I still, hand on heart, can't decide. And I think that's a real strength of the film. Yeah, I'm, I tend to be a bit of an internationalist because I think nationalism is rubbish. So I would tend to generally go, yay, UN, hurrah. I do think that Steve, however, has a point because the last thing you need in a crisis is a committee debating for three days about whether you're not allowed to go in. And something like, for example, the situation that the film sets up, where you've got five super soldiers about to be reactivated in Siberia. Mm-hmm. So that involves getting into Russian aerospace. Yes. In our world, you would not be allowed. Yes, you. That's right, that's right. So you're stuck and they disappear and they're gone. Steve's argument is not without merit in that sense. Mm. So on the que- this is on the quest of the Accords, mm-hmm. I think, not the other question. The other question, yes. Okay. So the Accords only. Accords only. Steve, right from the off, doesn't like it. Steve, well, Steve is coming straight from the Winter Soldier as far as we're concerned, really, mm. isn't he? And that has clearly scarred his ability to trust, I think. I think that was his kind of Watergate, if you like, because he missed the first one, which kind of, you know, I think Watergate and, and Vietnam shook America's faith in itself a little bit. And Steve didn't go through that at the time. I think he now has. And it's shaken his faith in the institutions. He's never been about government. He's always been about ideals, and actually, it, it completely makes sense that he wouldn't necessarily trust yeah. the government to Works. uphold those ideals in all circumstances. Uh, which is something that's been very, very consistent in the character from the off. For example, one of the pivotal moments in The First Avenger yeah. is when he disobeys orders and goes off and rescues Bucky and the rest of the 107th from, from the Red Skull's clutches. And that very first line when he's talking to Stanley Tucci, mm. you know, I don't want to kill anyone, I just don't like bullies. I don't like bullies. You know, Absolutely. That hasn't changed. Dan, what, what's your take on this? No, I, think, uh, I think Helen's sort of uh, got it right there in terms of you really do sympathise with what Steve believes. But I do think that his opinion is, is skewed. You know, his, his perspective is skewed by the fact that, you know, he was on ice for all that time. And I do actually think, you know, if, assuming, you know, we lived in that world, I would more be on Tony's side in terms of making sure that the Avengers are accountable That's true. to an organisation and, you know... I mean, I don't want to open a can of worms here, but maybe it should be the EU. <laughs> don't open that kind of worms. <laughs> but it is, it's interesting that out of the two of them in that discussion, when they first start talking about it, run the table with the others, it is Tony who is clearly emotionally compromised and not Steve. Steve is coming from a place of intellectual disagreement with what is being proposed. Tony is the one pulling the emotion card. And I can absolutely see where that would make someone more wary, not less, of what he is then putting forward. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. Even though Steve is obviously about the ideals, yeah. but he's intellectually approaching Tony the is the more emotional character throughout this film, and that comes up much more in their yeah. second form of disagreement. Mm-hmm. He is 
utterly driven by emotion there and not remotely by rationality. I mean, I saw a promotional thing last night. It's the crazy promotional cup for, for Captain America the Winter Soldier, which my little sister paid extra for with her ticket to get the promotional cup and the popcorn holder. It's very cool. Anyway, but one side has a picture of Captain America and it says freedom, and the other side has a picture of Iron Man and it says justice. And that's not what he's after at all. It's not remotely what he's after. He's after revenge. Yeah. I mean, that has to, you know, undermine his arguments a little Tony's bit. Tony's after revenge. Yeah. Towards the end of the movie. Yeah. But not, and no, not, not initially. Not I'm not of, talking about initially. Yeah, not at the point of signing the no, accords. No, at, at the point of signing the accords, mm. he's after penance. Yes. He is absolutely, that is him wearing a hair shirt, signing up to those accords. That is. is not, again, that's not rational either. That is him absolutely volunteering to wear a hair shirt because he feels bad. But I mean, that goes all the way back to the first ever Iron Man. You know, the yeah. fact that that's what drives Tony is just feeling bad about what he's done. Yeah. He just goes from feeling bad about what he's just done to a different thing that he's just done that he's feeling bad about, and then there's the thing after that. He keeps doing worse things. I mean, he kind of acknowledges that himself when he's mm. when he's talking to Steve about his failed relationship with Pepper. Yeah, he acknowledges that, but it's it's absolutely driving him in every scene of this film. And I think honestly, I mean, I, I said this in the regular podcast, but I think Robert Downey Jr. is absolutely stunning in this film. He's you know, it's all there on his face when he's not saying a word. Mm. He gives the performance of his life, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. But this is not the genius playboy philanthropist this is the you know bereaved young man yeah i love where tony goes in this film i love the depth and the shades that downey brings to him yeah. after six goes around when it would be so easy for him to just phone something in but this character is getting more and more interesting more and more complex more and more guilt-ridden i guess we'll talk later about what losing pepper that's a big decision in the, within the context of the mcu whether it's motivated by the fact they can't get gwyneth paltrow back who cares, quite frankly, because it's such a, an interesting development. Um, maybe let's talk about it now very, very quickly, because mm-hmm. I think it does impact an awful lot on what Tony does. In fact, for me, you almost didn't need the scene with Alfred Woodard by the, the lift, as good as that scene is, because it has all these great little moments in it where you, you see his suspicion as he realizes she hasn't pressed the lift button, and you see his fear as she reaches into her purse, and you realize, of course, you know, for all his suits and accoutrements and genius, uh, he's still a guy who could be shot at any time by an assassin. And this is his life, as he says, occupational hazard. This is what he goes through. Let's talk about that scene, that decision, first of all, of breaking the Tony Pepper relationship, which has been building and obviously came to a culmination, I guess, in Iron Man 3 when we last saw Pepper since 2008. Well, it's interesting because I, I, I didn't actually, to me, watching the film, it, it didn't feel like a big moment. It felt like an aside. Really? Yeah. It didn't feel like something that was at the heart of what was driving Tony or that mm. was that was informing him in, in in any particular way. It just it felt like a, you know, a small side point if you like. If anything, I mean there's there's an element of balancing it with Peggy's death to some degree. Yeah. Uh in terms of balancing out those two those two main characters, but it didn't feel as important obviously as Peggy's death did to st- you know, in terms of informing what Steve was going to do. It just felt like a, a small detail that maybe might explain why Gwyneth Paltrow is not going to be in any future films. <laughs> it felt important to me, definitely. And there's a line, I think it's in Iron Man 3, where he says something like, you know, who are we kidding? Your life is never going to be easy. You're dating me. You know, he knows he's difficult. He knows he makes her life difficult. And he knows, frankly, she's probably better off without him. As he says in this one, in her defence, I am a handful. Yeah, that's car- kind of carrying on that line. So he t- he told me when I interviewed him that this the scenes he was shooting were going to carry on the Tony and Pepper storyline, which I think they did. I took that to mean that they were literally carrying on the storyline with her, but obviously that was incorrect. But I think it did carry on that storyline. I think it did make sense. So yeah, and th- there is, I guess, that parallel with Peggy, which I thought was a really, really upsetting scene. It, it did have a slight, like even watching it last night, it did have a slight 
dissonance in that I would have thought Sharon was the one to text him. That's what I thought. From a landline number in London. <laughs> Interesting. If you can't text from landlines. Yeah, I'm sure you can. Yeah. To, to say that she'd passed away. Presumably it's a nurse or somebody that we never saw. And then he didn't seem to know that she was Peggy's niece before the eulogy. Yeah. Because he had that, he did do his surprised face. He did. And then she gave the weirdest eulogy ever from the point of view of eulogies, you googlies. But it was exactly what he obviously needed to hear at the time. And it yeah. was actually, you could feel Peggy's voice in it, in what she said at the end. So I thought that yeah. was quite good. I didn't get into the topic of Peggy and Sharon and whether it's icky to get together with the niece of your great love just after your great love has passed away, albeit at the age of 90-whatever. What, what, um, what's wrong with that? I, but Dan, quite rightly, has pointed out that it's, it's a normal thing that, yeah. that happens all the it's time. Been, they're not blood relatives. It's not yeah. like, you know, he had a kid with Peggy and then that kid had a kid and then he starts having sex with the, right, his yes, grandchild. No. It's not bad at all. It's not. No. So let's not. I don't think there's anything wrong. Anything wrong whatsoever. I, I mean, what like happened? Do all the carters. I feel like, no. <laughs> Go for it. I, I feel like she would have made more sense maybe as a grandniece, but I guess technically. technically her parents also, of course, lost her brother in World War II. Uh-huh. So maybe after that they had a sort of, you know, late in life, younger sibling. Could have been, or could have been aunt on the other side. Oh, I suppose. Could uh, have been Peggy's husband's sister. But then why Still would she be... technically sh- be an aunt, wouldn't you? Isn't she Sharon Carter? Same surname. What if Peggy marries a man called Carter. Uh, we're led to believe she didn't. But what if she does? Well, that would be a different thing. <laughs> Wait a second. Wait I, a second. I just I think thought, it's I fine. Thought. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> it's all fine. Right. Everything is okay, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I thought it was a very, very sad moment. You know, this character, he couldn't hang on too much longer. He had that lovely moment in The Winter Soldier with Hayley Atwell and lashes of CG talking to Steve. You have that really sad moment where she kind of forgets that she's been in the room with him and is looking at him again almost for the first time. It's a really sad moment. And this, I just thought, was a, a nice little bow on the Peggy Carter storyline for me. Yeah. Uh, see, it couldn't have ended in any other way, in my opinion. But the Sharon thing. So Sharon comes in and goes, Hey, I am Peggy's niece. And I didn't tell you because I didn't want anyone to know. Now, are we to believe that this is the first time Steve has seen Sharon since the offence of the Winter Soldier? That's how I'm reading it. That's how it read to me as well. And I'm, yeah, that didn't 100% necessarily make sense to me. But the scenes that there were with her were cute. I just didn't quite get what the backstory there had been between the two of them since last time. They could have crossed paths, you know. Yeah, they just didn't you know, seem she's, to have done she's, very she's much. She's working in the intelligence community. He's yeah, but over in a Europe. superhero, you know. They're both busy, but like, they could have made time. Yeah. I think they can make it work. Yeah. But obviously uh, the movie takes her, she she does what Steve does in a way. She disobeys a direct order and she goes against her superiors and she is, there's a lot of people ending the movie on the run. <laughs> I get well, the feeling. Yeah, we don't, we don't know. I was, I was watching last night because I, I was sitting halfway through and I thought, I don't remember what Black Widow does at the end. And I was thinking, well, it's 2am, Helen, that's probably why you don't remember anything. I didn't actually say Helen. I didn't remember my own name at that point. Heather. But, yes, Heather. <laughs> Come on, Haley. And that's because they don't show you. You know, there's that line where Tony tells her they're coming for her, she'll have to yeah. vanish. Mm. But you don't see it. And similarly with Sharon Carter. So there are some loose ends there that 
we're just going to have to wonder. Yeah, I'm, I get the feeling that they're both on the run. Natasha is doing whatever she does best, which is run around and making sure no one can find her. Maybe she's hooking up with Nick Fury, which is another thing <laughs> I didn't get to ask the Russos and Feige, sadly, I didn't get to ask about was his whereabouts during this movie. But yeah, it, it, it feels interesting he wasn't in the film and S.H.I.E.L.D., what's left of it, mm. wasn't in the film. It seems like a very specific and deliberate decision. So I, now, I think it was the right decision as well. Because, you liked it? Yeah, I did like it. Because, uh, you know, it's all about, as I said earlier, it's kind of keeping the strengths of these films but while stopping it from becoming formulaic. Mm-hmm. So when you get that, oh, it's the scene with Nick Fury, and oh, it's the scene where S.H.I.E.L.D. does something. You know, it's nice that we're past that now. Mm. But you it's know, interesting we're, because... We're, um, in, we're in, if you will, a new phase <laughs> of the uh, Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Although, by the way, did anyone notice that it continued the uh, phase two motif of people losing arms? I guess it did. Mm-hmm. Mm, it very much did. And I wonder if it's going to be, as we see phase three develop, whether there might be another motif... Well, like legs instead. Legs or, you know, people, I don't know, who knows. We shall see. Heads just falling off (laughs) randomly. But uh, Nick Fury for me is a character who I, I think more so than any of the other, he's very, very linked with Tony. Definitely. But I think he's also linked with Steve. Mm-hmm. At, the, at the end of the first Avenger, yeah. he, he's the one who first confronts him in Times Square and, and he plays a huge part, bigger than he has in any other Marvel movie in The Winter Soldier. And yeah, that relationship yeah. I thought was interesting. Maybe they could have picked it up a little bit. I'm not saying that I wanted a, a Nick Fury he's subplot, but... He kind of passed the torch in a way, though, because in Winter Soldier, he has that line, well, you know, you're the captain now. You're in charge now. Um, yeah. You know, there's that element of he's just like, like, hey, I'm out of it. You get on with it, kid. More to the point, there's an element where they've all treated him like their boss. Mm. Not consistently, not always, but generally speaking. So there's, I think, a feeling that if he came in, how do you not have him sorted out? You know? Yeah. yeah. And, and because he is in that position in regards to both Tony and Steve. Yeah. So how how do you not then just have it, you know, be it, diffused? It, it could be just him locking Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans in a room together and yelling at them for half an hour. That would be. <laughs> I would still watch that. Yeah. I don't know if you've answered the question. Should Cap have signed the Accords or not from Tom Trott? Should Cap have signed? What do you yes. think? You think he should have? Yes. Yeah. No, I think if he had that much of a problem with it, he should have, you know, gone and gotten a chance to negotiate about it. Actually gone and had a yeah. bit of a chit-chat about yeah. it. Because I wonder, because the movie doesn't quite make it clear that from the moment he decides not to sign or be at the, the sign in Vienna, is he a fugitive at that point in time? If you don't sign the accords, do you automatically Unless become you're an retired. Enemy I think the, the next state? time you do something, you're in trouble. Okay, so whenever he goes to rescue Bucky, whenever he yeah. goes to prevent Bucky being captured or killed, yeah. he becomes, as Tony Stark says, uh, he says, I'm a non-active combatant. So Steve becomes an active combatant. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean yeah. War Machine says at the end of that incredible chase scene, you know, you're a Congratulations, criminal. Congratulations, you're a criminal. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Personally, I don't think he should have signed the accords. I think he should do what feels right. You should be true to yourself. The magic was within him all along. All right, Peggy Polonius. Um, all right. These questions are not in order in which we received them, so they may, you know, flit around a bit. This question is from Joey Chu, who says, uh, Fun question, which actor would you cast to see MCU's Uncle Ben to Marissa Tomei's Aunt May? My pick is George Clooney. <laughs> I think he's nailed it pretty, pretty much. <laughs> I'd be amazed if we saw an MCU Uncle Ben. Yeah, we're not going to, are we? He's, he's already gone. Yep, he's gone. Unless there's a flashback. His rice has been cooked. Who else is around that age? He's a goner. Tom Cruise. Keanu. Keanu. Keanu, Keanu <laughs> would be... No, no. <laughs> All right, fine. God. Absolutely not. Such a spoiled sport. I genuinely can't think of anything. No, really? Um, <laughs> Yeah, I what the maybe I don't know. So you're looking for someone Ooh. sort of late forties, early fifties who could conceivably <gasps> be married to Marissa Tomei. Got it. Yeah, Toby Maguire. Toby Maguire. <laughs> he was such a a young Uncle Ben. 
He died well before his time. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. I think Clooney's nailed it. I think that's that's a really, really good pick. I'm not sure I can better that. That would be fantastic. I'd quite happily watch George Clooney be killed by a mug. Wait a second. Wait, what? Um, wait, wait, what? I think that's a really, really good casting choice. Yes, what about Eric Banner? Eric Banner. That's just confusing, though. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> it's good. I think Clooney, Edward Clooney Norman, would be great. Edward Norman. <laughs> Actually, Eric Banner's head, name also went through my head, so maybe that's a sign. I think it's very, very clear that, uh, and I really like the fact that we were introduced in media res, as they say, to uh, Peter Parker and Spider-Man, that the origin has happened, he's had these powers for six months, the bite has happened, and even as he begins to try and explain his origin, he gets cut off by Tony Stark. Mm. And we know that Uncle Ben is dead. That much we can infer from the conversation they have. And in fact, of course, that Aunt May is alone. Before we get into talking about that sequence, I think this is a a nice way to talk about Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and what I think is the film's best scene, the meeting of Peter Parker and Tony Stark. I think it's absolute perfection. Let's talk about the Only You reunion that happens when uh, Tony Stark meets Aunt May. Who knew? Who knew? that that rom-com would have a reunion <laughs> yeah, in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, what we were all excited I, about going into this. I was very excited about that. <laughs> so exciting. Um, <laughs> no, I, I agree that the scene was absolutely gorgeous. It's not my favourite scene in the movie. What is your um, favourite scene in the film? It's probably Tony and Steve, actually. It's that, Tony and Steve, not Tony and Eve. In that glass case of emotion. Which bit? Where they're talking about Pepper and everything else. Oh, the, the pen sequence. Yeah. Okay, yeah. all right, yep. Or anything with Stephen Bucky, which I like a lot. Damn, the, the staircase, my God. Yeah, it's a great sequence. Dan, what's your favourite scene? I've got to be really boring and obvious and, and, and say the, the actual the Leipzig Airport sequence. The splash panel. Yeah. Yeah. The, what, what did they call it? The splashdown? I think the, they called it the splashdown. The yeah. splashdown. Yeah. Just that hole where it just where it all comes together. The particular moment within it is another Spider-Man moment where he says, hey, everyone, hey, guys, do you remember that old movie? Yes. And uh, I was thinking it's going to be a gag about Attack of the 50-Foot Woman or something like that, because obviously Ant-Man's gone giant at this point. And he goes, yeah, it's called The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, on the one hand, there's that cynical element of, okay, yeah. it's another Disney property now, but it was just uh, just really well delivered. And like everyone's just like, oh, God, I hate him, how hate him. Is, and, how old and is he? It's a sort of like that nice thing of, you know, the kind of... Uh, uh, the generation to which I belong, uh, being exasperated by millennials, you know, <laughs> and it's it's going to be it was being played out there. So yeah. it was kind of that that little beat within the splashdown sequence. The, the, uh, I really love. My favorite line in that was that thing does not obey the laws of physics at mm. all. Um, mm. In reference to Cap Shield, which is entirely true and very little remarked upon, and rather wonderful. I mean, Spider Man was just great. It was it was so good to see him done properly because. You know, we were in here, what, two years ago talking about Amazing Spider-Man 2 and and trying to find things that we liked about it Mm. to talk about and Mm. be fair to it. And, you know, it just hasn't stuck in the memory at all because it was, it just, it torpedoed Spider-Man there. And it was kind of upsetting and it's really, really good to see him back and really, really good to see him look familiar and right and to have the right energy and you know to feel like he's back in good hands and no disrespect to Andrew Garfield who I think you know did a really good job by the second film I hated everything else that was going on so yeah I'm just really pleased to see him in such fine fettle yeah I think Andrew Garfield was was a fine Peter Parker and a good Spider-Man as far as material allowed. Yeah. The same thing with Brandon Routh as Superman in Superman Returns. Did I say Superman with Andrew Garfield? I think it may have done. No, you didn't. Um, did I not? <laughs> no, no, you you're didn't. Good, okay, good. I'm getting my mans mixed up. But uh, yeah, Tom Holland as Spider-Man is great. I love how quippy he is. Mm. This is the Spider-Man I grew up reading. There was a great moment where Falcon says, uh, I don't know if you've been in many fights, but there's <laughs> usually not this much talking. <laughs> Which, uh, again, another favourite moment. Yeah, and he's just full of inquisitiveness and uh, he's genuinely overawed to be fighting these people. 
I love the airport. The airport <laughs> fight is fantastic. But I think the meeting between Peter and Tony is brilliantly written. It is wonderfully acted. It touches on so many points. It retells his origin in a really, really clever way without actually retelling his origin. Uh, the chemistry between those two, you can see why Tony Stark will be in Spider-Man Homecoming because I want to see more of that relationship. I want to see more of the glibness. There is obviously real emotion beneath Tony in that scene as well, but it's really the first time in the movie that glib Tony Stark is back. The quippy Tony Stark is back, you know. Throughout the movies, if you look back at the relationship he has in Iron Man 3 with the young kid, he has this wonderful relationship with kids that he can just, because he doesn't, he treats them as equals. Yeah. And I, I just thought that was a wonderfully, wonderfully written scene. And I had a smile on my face for the minute. For the minute those two got together in that bedroom, I was, I just loved it. It's a great scene. I love it. Yes. And I love Spider-Man in this movie and I can't wait to see more. I'll tell you which other scene I loved. Mm-hmm. Talking about shields, not, not obeying the laws of physics, <laughs> was the, um, when uh, Stephen Bucky get out and the poor German <laughs> guys, uh, those German SWAT guys are trying to get them and they're all in the, the stairwell. Yeah. yeah, the stairwell. Yeah. And it was kind of like just watching a Bourne movie. Yes. Mm. Some of that stuff. And I just love the shield throwing stuff. That whole scene, I just, I just love like when Bucky just casually tosses his backpack over his shoulder out the window and onto the building next door. Just from that on, it's flawless. He knocks Steve over, punches through the floor. It just, it's so good. It was so good. And actually, there's a moment in there which is one of my favourite moments in the film. There's so many gorgeous shots in this film, like full marks to the DP because it's, it's a beautiful looking thing. And and the effects guys and directors and everybody. There's and a bit services. where <laughs> craft services. Yeah, they were good actually. I was, did oh, I mention really? I was on set? Yeah, it was really good food. Um, but there's a bit where where Bucky's jumping. Jumping off the building in the middle of the fight with Black Panther, mm. and he just pivots slightly on this tiny little ledge as he lands. You just see his foot pivot and catch himself on this this incredibly thin ledge. I don't know what it is about it, but I just think it's one of the most beautiful little moves. <laughs> it's a great note, isn't it? It's, yeah. that, it's something that gives it a reality within within its own context. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it has possibly that that whole sequence. I don't know how we got talking about this sequence, but the, it has possibly the most gift worthy moment in the entire movie the, I would say the motorbike the motorbike yeah when Bucky grabs the motorbike of a guy as it's moving mm-hmm. at full speed towards him swings it around and then climbs on it not in one shot there's a there's an edit but oh, um, there? Yeah. yeah but it's it's pretty damn it's impressive pretty cool. it's, I mean soon after of course Steve rolls that car as Bucky explodes the top of the tunnel yes. Rolls the car and steps out of it as it rolls and runs, <laughs> which is almost as good. But yeah, I think that the, the motorbike thing was nice because it kind of echoed what Steve did in Age of Ultron at the very beginning in that in that scene. Yes. So it was it was kind yeah. of a nice little reminder that those two worked well together. At one point in that sequence, which reminded me the Bourne, yeah, I love the Bourne parallels, but it also reminded me of basically the raid with superheroes. Yes. Um, yes, well, I name-checked Gareth Evans in yeah. my review. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and the Bourne. I love the way that Bucky grabs the, the railing, Mm-hmm. pulls it off, so to speak, and then swings over the other guys and then Cap is desperately trying to stop him killing people, which is a quite a nice little beat. Yeah, he's not trying to kill people. He just accident- That guy accidentally sort of He trips. just can't help it. He well, can't that guy help. just un- overbalances, so Steve has to catch him, but he's yeah. been quite careful up Come on, that point. man. Yeah, he exactly. Says. But this, this is the thing, because uh, Steve says to Bucky, don't kill anyone. No killing, essentially. And you know, Bucky says, I'm not going to kill anyone. But these guys kill quite a lot. Yeah. You look at Winter Soldier. Yeah. And I know Bucky is not himself. I know mm-hmm. and there's an interesting discussion. Let's have it now. About culpability, because I know, Helen, you have something to say about this, because uh, we've had chats about this in the past. People talk about the other movie that we're not going to talk about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or we're certainly not going to mention it, because I think it's unfair to mention that movie in relation to this one. And it's easy. It's an easy bashing thing. But that movie obviously had a lot of flack about a certain character and his attitude towards killing people and... 
the movie's attitude towards killing people and using humans as, as faceless collateral damage. And it's interesting, all the way through the Marvel movies, right from the, Captain, the first Avenger, the movies have treated Captain America as what he is, he, a soldier. And he has never balked at killing people and he kills bad guys. And in the opening sequence of this movie, Falcon straight up shoots a guy in the chest at point blank range and drops him off a building. And you're kind of going, okay, these are our heroes. This is interesting. Helen. Yeah, so they, they definitely kill people in combat. There's no question about yeah. that. And, and Cap's never had any one rule or anything like that. Now, here's my thing. The character we're not going to mention uh, <laughs> definitely straight up murders people in that film because he is, at the very least, he is reckless as to their deaths. He does drive a car into someone's face. He does drive a car into someone's face. He is, at the, at the very least, reckless as to whether or not he's going to kill them, and that is enough yeah. for murder in most jurisdictions. Do you know which character we're talking about? Batman. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the Winter well, Soldier, gone. however. No, Bucky may well kill people. He's certainly liable for some damage to those people in the stairwell, and if any of them died of their injuries, then yes, okay, Bucky's liable for murder. But we're told that he's not killing people in that scene, and we're as far as we know, nobody is killed. So we're going to assume that that's just GBH and done. And as far as we know, he hasn't killed anyone as Bucky. since since World yeah. War Two. Yes, well, as himself. Yeah, as sorry, yeah, as he's Bucky not going around the Winter Soldier. Book arrest, offing people for for shits and giggles. Exactly. Okay. So I'm going to talk about Buffy and the, Bucky and the Winter Soldier. Buffy, Buffy. I will always crossover. <laughs> I can hear the slash fake being written right now. Or a jossover. So, Bucky, I don't think he's guilty of any of the Winter Soldier's murders. And this is my big problem with Tony at the end of the film. There is a defense to murder, among other crimes, of ultimacism, which is basically where you are not in control of your actions. And there are, even if you can't prove that defense, which is quite niche and quite rarely used, there are two elements to murder that you have to prove. There's the actus reus, which is the act of killing, and the mens rea, which is the mental state that accompanies it. So, basically, if you you know, completely have no intention to harm anyone in any way and yet something happens because of something you did, that would not be murder. It might be manslaughter, but even then it might not be, depending on your state of mind. Mm. Bucky's state of mind is never that of a murderer. And the Winter Soldier is not something that he's in control of. We are explicitly told that he is not in control as the Winter Soldier. He is not able mm. to stop his actions. Mm. And therefore he is not a murderer. But it's an emotional moment for Tony, isn't it? You know, that yeah. moment, and he loses, and, sure. and, and you see, that's why he was right to begin with, because, you know, there, there are going to be these emotional moments, and you need this group of people to be answerable to another body, to well, a higher power. No, that doesn't necessarily follow, though, does it? Because the higher power can also get emotional. The problem with Tony at that point is he is irrational. And I think the problem with Steve, and this is something that Chris Evans said, mm -hmm. is that Steve is so not interested in carrying emotional baggage that he doesn't really get that people do. Now, he obviously has a hang-up about Bucky. We, we all know that. And he has, he has, his hang -ups, yeah. and he has his hang-ups about Peggy, of course, as well. But he doesn't sit around feeling sorry for himself. He doesn't brood. He doesn't wallow. No, he sees it very much as a soldier. He says that to Wanda early on. Yeah. He's like, you know, people you will die to, and exactly. you have to move on because the next time you might save people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's Tony, it's Tony who has post-traumatic stress. It is. And this you is know? the thing. But this is it. So that's why Steve didn't say about Bucky and the possibility that the Winter Soldier killed Tony's parents. From the montage we're showing in The Winter Soldier, he clearly knew that Hydra was responsible for Hard Stark's death. Mm. And there was a juxtaposition of a picture of Bucky soon after, which made it look like that Bucky specifically might have been responsible mm -hmm. for Hard's death. But it wasn't explicitly laid out. So he's not lying when he says at the end, I didn't know it was him. And then he's also not lying, really, when he says immediately afterwards, yes, I did. He kind of put it together, but he was not explicitly told that it was Bucky, unless it was in the file that 
Natasha gave him at the end of yeah. the Winter Soldier from it's not, Kiev. It's certainly not made clear at any point, and I think the Russo said that it's just something that you have to assume that either he figured out or he yeah. knows on his own. That bit for me is the moment that I almost became Team Tony. That's a big thing for Steve to withhold. And if he even admits at the end in that letter that he sends to Tony that he may have been wrong to do so, and he, but he yeah. realizes now he was wrong to do so. I don't think it's a bad thing that Tony is emotional at that moment. When you put yourself in Tony's shoes, bad, but no, yeah, but, but I'm just saying, laudable either. It's not laudable. No, it's not laudable. But if you put yourself in his shoes, and he has for 25 years laboured under the assumption that his parents died of natural causes, or or as natural as a car crash can be. And suddenly his entire world is yanked from under his feet and he's told, no, they weren't, they were killed. And the person who killed him is standing five feet away and this person, this so-called friend and colleague and teammate of yours, knew about it and did nothing. In fact, this whole thing has been about Steve trying to defend Bucky and trying to keep him out of prison and keep him from being killed. So he's very much clearly putting Bucky in a pedestal above Tony. And from Steve's point of view, that's absolutely fair and accurate. But I can absolutely understand why Tony goes off the deep end at that point. For me, that's a huge, huge moment. I talked about this and I mentioned the same phrase in the interview. And I took the phrase in a way from Robbie Collin in The Telegraph, who says that this movie detonates emotional time bombs you didn't even know were there. And it's right there, right from the very beginning of Iron Man. We know that Howard and Maria Stark, the picture changes... The yeah. picture of Howard Stark changes from the poor schmo who, who uh, posed <laughs> that, that picture in, in the first Iron Man to Dominic Cooper in Winter Soldier. And then, lo and behold, it's John Slattery, uh, Trevor's brother, in, uh, in this movie, I think. I haven't seen the yet. I actually, I don't think you see the picture in this, but Howard Stark changes over time, is what I'm saying. But uh, it's right there from the first one, from Iron Man 1, that they die in a car crash. And then, as you, as you say, we're reminded of it again in Winter Soldier. So all along, they've been prepping us for a revelation. Whether they knew all along that it was going to be Bucky and the Winter Soldier and they would come to a head in this movie, I don't know. But I th- I th- it's I been think there. They, I think they did. Yeah, I think they did. This ain't George Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> it's been hiding in plain sight. They, yeah, uh, they yeah. certainly had some thoughts on this before, yeah. before Winter Soldier came out. But I, I don't... It may be understandable, it's just not... It, it doesn't excuse then trying to kill somebody for me. And I think this is a, maybe this is just a, a male woman thing because like a lot of guys have been going, how can you possibly side with Steve at that point? I'm like, dude, like Tony wants to flat out kill somebody who's not responsible for what he did. I, I'm sorry, that's not cool. I agree with you on that. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Should, I'm, it's, I'm it's, team Iron yeah. Man, but I'm not team Iron Man killing Bucky. Yeah. I well. think that's wrong. I think Bucky should be taken in and at least face some sort of major therapy or, oh, I agree that, or justice you know, in some way. Bucky agrees he needs therapy, but that's yeah. not what Tony go- goes for. No, but I don't think at that point... Tony doesn't I, say, put down your gun, let's go and get you some therapy. Mm. But No, of course he doesn't, but I don't think at that point he's even... He's not thinking straight, yeah, and I exactly. think it's entirely reasonable to allow that. I think he's not thinking straight, and that's true, but that doesn't mean that you get away with whatever you do next. That's all I'm saying. Good scene, though. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a great scene. And one of the things I love about it is that the movie has worked to make sure that the conflict between Cap and Iron Man is kind of set aside by that point. Not resolved completely, but certainly he does. He goes to the Siberian base as a, as a friend, as Sam asks him to do. And you think that it's going to be these three guys versus the five yeah. madcap winter soldiers, those yeah. wacky guys running around, killing people. And you think it's going to be that, and it absolutely wrong foots you. Now, I have to say, I saw the parents thing coming. I don't know whether you guys did. I have a friend who saw the movie and he was sending me yesterday. He didn't see it coming at all. 
and when the revelation came at the end he was like oh that's why we've been seeing that car crash from different angles all the way through the film that's why his parents appear at the beginning of the movie that's why Tony seems more fixated on his mum and dad than he did in previous films okay now I see did you figure did you know I, I knew I thought it was going to be an an issue I asked about it on set okay. and people climbed up a little <laughs> very very fast I mean they climbed up pretty regularly on set you know, anytime I asked something like, I don't know, where is lunch? You know, climbed up. Um, I thought you said the cat cross service was good. <laughs> tell me your character name, climbed up. Yeah. You know, it, it, there was a lot e- of that. Even but... the cross services served clams. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of that, but at the same time, that particularly seemed to strike a little bit of a nerve. So I th- kind of thought it would play in somewhere. I didn't necessarily see it going exactly the way that it did, but yeah. It was uh, definitely going to be there. I, I didn't have a clue. But if I, I was getting towards the end of the film, I was going, like, well, what was that little prologue all about then? Why did we see that thing with the car? What was, you know, what was going on? Also, by the way, the breakup with Pepper might have been what drove him to this sort of attempt at self-therapy with the weirdo glasses. Yeah. So I thought that was um, kind of an interesting light that he suddenly started trying to get over this mm. as a result of seeing that he has major problems that have broken up this relationship mm-hmm. and therefore he's trying to self-medicate, mm. as it were. I thought it was an ingenious way of uh, of actually presenting the Starks. There's a moment where it goes from the deaths of all those people in, in Lagos to Hope Davis playing the piano. Mm-hmm. And for a second, it teeters on the brink of being unintentionally comedic. It really does. And then it just manages to pull it back. And you're oh. thinking, oh, okay, this is a flashback. And uh, I'll be honest, because I'd seen a clip on Jimmy Kimmel, uh, an interview on Jimmy Kimmel, where uh, Downey and... Yeah, all those, I think it was Team Iron Man were on there and Jimmy Kimmel said there's a kid playing young Tony Stark in this who's really really good and I was like oh wow who the cast is young Tony Stark and then it's <laughs> it's oh my god that's, that's beyond freaky it's uh, no no kill it kill it with fire what is it um, it's time travel <laughs> yeah it's it's really it's, I think that's uh, Lola VX uh, effect, you think actually, yeah. they have gone in just a couple of years beyond I mean, Michael Douglas and that man, young Michael yeah. Douglas and that man, yeah. was really spot on. This, they gave him a close-up. Last shot in, apparently, last effect shot in. They gave him a close-up. His eyes look like eyes. They react. Little, little bit, little bit glowy. Little you think a little bit, bit glowy? Little bit, yeah. Mm. Little bit. The voice yeah. isn't quite right. It's still an older man's voice. But you could write that off as this scene didn't really happen. It's not a memory. He actually talks about it. He's twisting it in a way that he actually wanted to say goodbye to his parents. Because presumably Tony Stark just flipped off his parents when he saw him for the last time. And that is, again, something that has been living within him beneath the flippancy and beneath the glibness for all that time. Get over it, Tony. (laughs) Honestly. Man up. Thank God his mum wasn't called Martha, right? Here's a question from Stuart Mulhall. And in fact, this echoes something that Nick DeSemlian, who was meant to be on this podcast but couldn't make it, a criticism he had of the movie, which would be interesting to address. And the Russos do talk about this very, very eloquently in the interview. But, dear Pod, I love the film and the MCU in general, but I was just wondering, has the MCU become a little safe as in nobody of any real importance has died? Quicksilver did in Age of Ultron, but he wasn't a fully developed character. There seems to be no real consequence for the Avengers. They all survive or return. They miss a trick by not killing War Machine. And then Mark Cassidy adds another question. He said, I love the film, but there are a few nitpicks. No deaths. I think the story needed someone six feet under to really hammer home the weight of what was going down. I get that they need all their players in place to continue the franchise, but still think they should have had the guys scratch off Cap as they do in the (gasps) comics. So Cap dies at the end of Civil War, the huge arc by Mark Miller and Steve McNiven. Obviously, he doesn't die in this. 
No. Tony doesn't die in this. Nobody dies in this, with the exception of Peggy Carter. Even Seymour, the bad guy, doesn't die. I thought they might kill Tony, actually. That was that was sort of my prediction. But it was probably a little bit obvious to kind of reverse the polarity, if you will, of the comics. And also, you know, people like him like a lot. And also you'd have <laughs> to make sure that he wasn't killed as a result of something Steve did, because then that completely undermines your remaining character when you're yeah. going into Infinity War. So I guess they can do it. That's fine. I don't think you need to have death to have dramatic weight, and I think you're all a bit bloodthirsty, you monsters. I mean, I think there was a lot of emotional heft in this, even without death, and you had the death hanging over you of, as we've just discussed, of the Stark elders. Yeah, and, so bloody I thought I was watching Game of Thrones. Yeah, and, and you have, you know, there's a lot of death in the movie, it's just not your central characters, but hmm. I, I'm kind of okay with that. They, they killed Crossbones. They did kill Crossbones, is that absolutely right. I'd say one of the one of the main characters is is never really properly alive, and that's uh, Bucky. I just think this is his afterlife, isn't it? Wow, you know what I mean? Deep man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think you know he he came back in some form, but he didn't really come back. I think he really died in that first Captain America. Movie. I think it is interesting. I'm, I'm wondering. I mean, there's obviously the post credit sting where we see him go back under the ice, which I kind of was you know upset by because I like Buffy, Buffy a lot, but also Buffy. <laughs> again, I keep saying with the Buffy. I like Buffy. Well, Bucky is pretty Buffy as well. Yeah, he is yeah. right. Mm. Yeah, he's been working out. I think. But, uh, and, and by the way, Chris Evans has definitely started working out. They used to say he was the Avenger who didn't really have to do any all the training. I feel like he's training now. I, I, I think that they've been, that's pulling porky, you know, telling yeah. porky pies for, for a while. I mean, I you don't true. get that body, believe me, I know. You were his body double though, Chris, I right? was his for body the, double, for yeah. The air, for the helicopter scene. They needed someone to hold the helicopter. Yeah. I went, guys, I gave him my, my latte and, uh, and just grabbed the helicopter. I, I would do it again tomorrow. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, that bicep scene. Bloody hell. That was Bloody hell. Um, anyway, we were talking about... What were we talking about? We were yeah. talking about Bucky going back under. Um, yes, we were. And, and then deaths. And deaths. And that was kind of interesting because I wonder how they're kind of going to fix him and bring him back if they are. And I would imagine... I was thinking it might involve Doctor Strange. Well, this is the thing. Um, I thought the Bucky thing was a bit strange. And we had a question from someone, I will get your name in a second, sir, who thought it was a bit pat that Bucky would choose to go under after everything he's been through. However, I would say that... He has ample motivation to do so because you don't know, Dan, we were talking about this in the way over here today. We were. He doesn't know. He has no idea whether there's another Simo just waiting in the woodwork yeah. just to yeah. come out and have the magic words that will unlock him and turn him into a killing machine or maybe something worse. Uh, who knows? So maybe you would put yourself yeah. back under given the incredible resources that Wakandans seem to have at their disposal. Yeah. A, a sort of Quinjet that even Iron Man can't detect and an indestructible suit, all sorts of stuff. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the next time we see Bucky is playing a pivotal role in Black Panther. Mm. Yeah, I was wondering that as well. Will, will he be back in Black Panther? I, I, yeah, it I, seems I, to be that. Going for up. now, it, it dramatically made sense to me that he would go on ice. Uh, like I said, I mean, basically everything he's been experiencing since we revisited him in The Winter Soldier has been hell. Mm. He'd choose oblivion over hell. But yeah. um, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you who they should have killed off in this film. Okay. Spider-Man. How even dare you? <laughs> that would, would, would that just be awesome? Oh, it's Spider-Man. He's back in the MCU. La, la, la. It's just like, okay, we, we, we've only got him for so long before he has to go back to Sony, so now let's kill him. Giant and man steps it, on it. him. Yeah. Just squashes like oh, a bug. Okay, oh, hey, guys. Guy? Oh, my God. I've got it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Paul Rudd, super murderer. Are yeah. you kidding yeah. me? No, but Helen, I'm sorry. You just defended Bucky of murder, and I'm saying that wouldn't be murder. If you accidentally stepped on Spider-Man, if you didn't know, is that uh, murder? No, yes, because if he's if he's giant man because he's in a fight fighting Spider-Man, and mm. then he accidentally no, 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 no. steps... 
what if he's not fighting Spider-Man? He doesn't know the Spider-Man's there, right? So he's, he's just stepping backwards. He's, he's having just, a giant Coke and he just steps back and whoops, splat. bug squish. So we're talking a non-fight situation. Yeah, now is like, that murder? He's just out on the street, but or, he's a giant. Yeah. Well, but isn't he being reckless by being a giant? It's diminished responsibility or the opposite. Enhanced responsibility, <laughs> if anything. Is, is it murder or is it just simply Spider-Man slaughter? <laughs> You just wanted to say that, didn't you? I just thought of it. <laughs> but yes, bloodthirstiness. I mean, you know, Lord of the Rings, most of them don't die. Star Wars, most of them don't die. The X-Men films, most of them don't die. There's, you get and the key, all of them come back to life. Yeah, you get the, the absolute significant death, don't you? You get those significant deaths as you go along. But, you know, this it's not, as you said, you know, you said it was like Game of Thrones, but it's not. It's not Game of Thrones, <laughs> you know? It's get Fewer weird. boobs for a start. But, wouldn't you like to see some boobs in a Marvel movie? That would be interesting, wouldn't no, it? No, I'm okay, really. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I, you're not going to get Helen's support in that one, Dan. <laughs> yeah. but, um, actually, I was actually quite bothered by them in uh, Deadpool. I was just like, this isn't right. Even though it was only for like a flash of a second. Yeah, I kind of feel that the need for a big death, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mm. think that it's far more interesting from a storytelling point of view to do what they do at the end of this movie, which is to leave Tony Stark a broken... Tony Stark in charge of the shittest lineup of the Avengers in the history of comic books and movies. Um, not to say that Division isn't incredibly powerful, he is, but his head's away with it as well. You have a crippled Rhodey, and presumably he's going to recruit Doctor Strange and Spider-Man at some point as well, so that when Thanos turns up and goes, hey guys, I'd like to have that gem back, please, that they'll have a formidable fighting team. But that's more important to me, and more interesting to me. Plus, you have Steve Rogers, the former flag bearer for the US, for, for America, mm-hmm. fighting against his own government, and breaking out Ant-Man, the Falcon, Scarlet Witch and Hawkeye as a sort of superpowered A team who presumably will be running around doing odd jobs and errands now until Infinity War Part One. That's more interesting to me. They will be me. pitying the fool. They will be pitying the fool. That's amazing. I, mean, I think that's going to be really cool. I also, yeah, I'm kind of intrigued. I mean, they're they're right. It was a psychological reinvention of the Marvel universe, which is what they set out to do. I think that's that's clear from the situation that everyone's left here um, at the end of the movie. Mm. You know, it is going to take a, a you know world threatening super being to to get those guys back together. And it I, won't be pretty when they get back together again. Tony no, ain't going to forgive initially. Steve, and Steve ain't going to forgive Tony. It's not that simple. I, I mean, I think. It, I think there was a glimmer of hope there as, as Tony read the letter, so I'm not too worried about that. What I am interested in was Vision's little mention about not knowing what the stone is in his head and saying that he sought to understand it so perhaps he could control it. Yes. And I wonder if that could come into play later on. One of the few nods, I think, to the future I in, think so. in this film. I'm, I'm intrigued to see how um, and the Wasp is going to turn out if Scott Lang is now a fugitive from justice. I mean, as he says, that's pretty much, you know. It's pretty his, much part of the course, but, yeah, uh, you know, whether that's going to factor into things as well. I think that it's far more interesting to have a, a crippled roadie struggling to come to terms with the fact that he can't use his legs anymore than it is to kill him. Uh, that, You're really, like, dark. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's it is. And also, it's, it's actually quite a potentially progressive thing. I mean, in the comic books, we've had some of the best characters have been disabled characters in the comics. I'm, mm. I'm thinking of, you know, Oracle in the DC universe. So, you know, he could he could still do great things. There's a lot to get through and not a lot of time in which to get through it. But just talking about the whole thing at the end, the Steve-Tony-Bucky battle that ends with Bucky's arm being blown off, I thought one a really interesting note was that Steve, at the end, leaves the shield behind. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is a rejection of everything, but also an acknowledgement, I think, that he at that point in time is flawed enough to not be Captain America. That's how I read the situation. I don't know what you, your take uh, on that was. I, I read it as, as a tribute to High Noon. 
<laughs> I read it as a, as a sort of tribute to Tony, actually. I read it as a gesture of friendship. Okay. In Extremis, not the comic. Just as, as, a, as an acknowledgement that, yes, Tony had that point correctly. He didn't drop it when he said, you don't deserve it. He dropped it when he said, that was my father's shield. That's when he dropped it. And so I think it is an acknowledgement of that he has messed up. I think he acknowledges it there before he does in the letter. I think he acknowledges that, yes, okay, he should have told Tony earlier. Yes, absolutely. But I also think it's an acknowledgement at the moment, at this moment in time, I, Steve Rogers, did not deserve to have the shield. I don't think it's about dessert. I think it's about... Dessert's got nothing to do with it. I mean, dessert always has something dessert, to do with it. Dessert, dessert. Yeah, Back to but, craft services again. Um, <laughs> he's, he's not the hero that America needs right now, but he's the one it deserves. <laughs> What do we think about the, the, the last shot? One of the things I think Marvel's great at is closing their films, ending their films. So this movie ends with uh, Steve rescuing everyone from the raft and smiling at Sam, but ostensibly also smiling at us. And I think it's a lovely, reassuring shot. And it's a perfect, for me, it's a perfect ending. You know, if you need us, if you need me, I'll be there. What I, a guy. I think it's going to be a hip-hop song this summer. What a guy. <laughs> So you think they're just going to go off to cut some tunes and release a record later on? Like you wouldn't buy Captain America's album. Come on. Yeah. So Jared asks, do you think Simo is the best Marvel villain since Loki? Layered, interesting, not just wanting control of the world or destruction and arguably achieving his goals. I found him fascinating and a refreshing change. I think he was absolutely refreshing and I think it was a really nice counterintuitive way to go that somebody isn't out for megalomaniac reasons. Well, I mean, I guess there's kind of megalomania there, but not perhaps in the traditional sense. He's not out to, to take over anything. He's not out to blow things up or kill loads of people. He's just out to destroy this tiny little group, which is nice, which is interesting, which I mean, is unusual. I mean, he is interesting, and he's human as well. He's, yeah. hu- he's a human villain. I mean, he's not some big mad titan looking for his you know, magical gems. He's, he's someone with, with a re- relatable motivation. I mean, he's obviously his plan's just kind of crazy, but anyway, that's, that's that you know, it's a superhero film, so. Well, I think he adapts. I think his plan adjusts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's like the Joker in the Dark Knight. You know, it's kind of like if you just pick it apart, it doesn't work. But as you're watching yeah. it, it's it's good fun. I think it's a little bit more sensible than that because I think he's got a few more layers than the Joker did. Yeah. Mm. Um, the Joker's plan com- depended entirely on coincidences he could no way control. Mm. But this one, I mean, in fairness, there's a little bit of that to, to Seymour's plan as well. There's a little well. bit, for example he has to somehow manipulate the situation so that Tony and Steve are in the same room at the moment that he chooses to play the tape containing the murder of Tony's parents. And the only way to do that, really, is to release the information about Dr. Broussard, yeah. and all the Steve Broussard, the, uh, Stephen Broussard, the, uh, one of Marvel's producers under Kevin Feige, played by Gozi Agbo, of course. He releases that information about that doctor so that it'll be uploaded by Berlin police. Friday will tell Tony about it, and Tony will go, okay, Right, I should investigate this, but there's still no way to guarantee that Tony and Steve will end up in the same room at the same time. So there's a million moving parts that just about come together. But the plan for me is a little bit more layered and a little bit more together than most villain plots in yeah. movies like this. Because he even says to Fastly Karpov, the, the guard from whom he takes the book, he says, tell me what I need to know now. And I don't have to kill anyone else. I don't have to do anything else. And when Karpov, that Hydra scum, goes hell Hydra and chooses to drown in what I thought was quite a dark moment, um, he chooses to drown and that then leads Simo to bomb the UN, to kill Black Panther's father, to set off this chain of revenge and recrimination and I thought that was interesting but clearly then he had a plan. You know, tell me what I need to know, I'll go and get the book and everything would be fine. And plan A, plan it. B, plan yeah. C. I mean, you suspect that once the power came back on, if everybody hadn't gone quite as crazy that he would just have had him say it in that cell he maybe didn't count on Bucky breaking out 
I think and he, killing a bunch of people. He he didn't necessarily because um, because then he would have had him saying it in that cell. But he wanted to get the information first and make sure he knew what he was about. I think he wanted the proof. He wanted the, he wanted the tape. He wanted something that was categorical. And if people wonder how Simo suspected about the Starks, well, he says when he goes to Karpov's house that millions of hydrophiles were released and he is very adept at reading them. And presumably on there there's a reference to the Starks murder, there's a reference to Bucky, there's a reference mm-hmm. to everything. But you might as well ask why how Tony knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Why wasn't that stuff leaked when, you remember Black Widow leaked well, all he, of well, the, uh, he said, all the files? He actually says it, it was leaked, but a lot of it was encrypted. Ah. And he's actually broken the encryption. Right, okay, got it. But yeah. she leaked billions of pages, so mm. it, it takes someone as, you know, dedicated as him to actually go through and find anything useful. Mm. Kind of a similar thing to, to Snowden and WikiLeaks, because mm. it was millions and millions of pages, and it's just a matter of finding the relevant bits. It's knowing where to look. It's knowing to look for the needle in the haystack. I think that's, and he knows where to look. Mm. I thought he's very, very good. I thought it was interesting that they keep him alive. I had a nice contrast. It's a movie about revenge. It's a movie about vengeance. It's a movie about losing yourself in that. Uh, and it's fairly bluntly said at the end when T'Challa says, you've been consumed by vengeance. They're being consumed by it. I will not be consumed by it anymore. And he chooses to save Simo's life, the man who killed his dad, rather than letting him take the easy way out. That was a, great great move for that that character i thought because he did you know he did go from you know single minded pursuit of the guy responsible and he grew in a way that that maybe tony didn't have a chance to by the end of the movie he grew past that and i think that was great and it makes you more interested in what's going to come next for him i think it was also interesting that they start off with him that little tiny scene between him and his dad and he's saying that he's happy and he thanks his dad for something and mm-hmm. his dad thanks him back and you don't actually know what they're talking about there which i think is quite interesting I think it might be something to do with, you know, the Black Panther mantle or something. I wonder if that's going to come back into his film. If it's going to be clear what that was about, or maybe I just missed something. It's a tough scene because you got to do a lot of heavy lifting. You got to establish a relationship between, you know, father and son, who then gets immediately the father gets immediately killed. I'd like to see more of T'Chaka, but then we'd be talking about a four-hour movie. Mm. I think he basically just establishes the fact that you're not a politician. You don't really belong in this world uh, you're quite tempestuous aren't you T'Challa yes yes I am dad but you know thank you for being here and then the shit hits the fan mm. I th- just thought it was some- but something more than that it seemed to be maybe it is. something outside the scenes and maybe I'm again maybe I'm over reading it but it just seemed to be there might be a little bit of backstory there that will get explained hmm. in his standalone maybe it is I mean, Black Panther was fun. That was the, yeah. you know, sort of his introduction. I thought worked worked very well. I mean, in terms of his powers and the kind of the things that he does, he doesn't really feel that different from many of the others. Black Widow has has that kind of agility, and Tony Stark has this kind, you know, has technology. And yeah, do you I know what I mean? He's an interesting, it, uh, he's an interesting mix for me because he had he he does seem to have, and perhaps again, reading too much into it, he does seem to have undergone the sort of well, in the comics, it's the mystical element of his super personhood which gives him the increased agility and strength and all of that he seemed to have that which put him on sort of super soldier level Mm. and then he also had this sort of high-tech suit so it wasn't at least it looked to me like it wasn't just a matter of he's wearing the suit it looked like he has also sort of undergone the initiation yeah i didn't i didn't take it that the suit made him run really fast Um, but that that means it's an interesting mix of sort of you know super soldier bucky and cap level powers and Mm. tony level tech as well which I thought was kind of a nice mix. But also, the, you know, a vibranium suit is clearly where it's at. Like, that, that will stop 
anything that comes at you, which is an extremely useful thing. Apart, of course, from Wolverine's adamantium claws. Oh, wait, that's... No, that's <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris, you just passed the oh, no. geeky event horizon there. Although, oh, no. although, although I suppose if he was hit by Thor's hammer... Oh, my goodness. Or if Hulk punched him. I mean, I think he'd feel it. Mm. There'd be contusions. Friday would <laughs> detect contusions. <laughs> Could the Hulk break Cap's shield? Could the Hulk rip Black Panther's suit? Probably yeah. not. Mm, maybe we'll find out one day. First time around, I thought he didn't quite have enough screen time. That may still be the case, but there's certainly enough in there, and he's certainly different enough to anyone else we've seen. He's got a stillness and a calmness. He doesn't say very much. That is very, very different to any of the other Avengers. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm jazzed. I'm jazzed. Mm. It's going to be uh, interesting to see how that character develops. And can I just give a shout-out as well to the character my wife absolutely loved in particular? That sequence where T'Challa is walking outside, having been arrested, and meets Natasha. And T'Challa's security chief, played by Florence Kasumba, walks up to this extraordinary, gorgeous woman and just walks up and goes, move or you will be moved. And T'Challa goes, as entertaining as I would be, that's maybe not do that. And she's awesome. She's amazing. I was standing right there when that happened. No way. I was there. No way. And also that car he gets into is like some kind of experimental test supercar. Wow. Um, A real world supercar. It is a real world supercar. Like literally he just touches the door to open it and then it opens. It also has the greatest hubcaps I've ever seen in my life. So it doesn't sort of go up in the air and fly off in a really sort of crap manner. I mean, it might have done. They didn't move it while I was there. Okay. (laughs) Okay, we're pretty much done. Vision and Scarlet Witch. Vision and Scarlet Witch, I absolutely loved. I love Vision. I just think I I loved him pretty much instantly in Avengers. I thought that was one of the great character introductions in, sorry, Age of Ultron. And he's just been growing on me ever since. And I think he was very, very charming here. I would have liked, I wanted more of basically everybody. I would watch the four-hour cut of this film if if such a thing existed. I'm not so into it. It seems a bit of a tired trope, that kind of, oh, I am am android man. What is this thing you humans call food? Hmm, I will will learn how to cook so I could understand you better, you know. As kind of, I've been there with data, and you know, from Star Trek. The data's done brilliantly. And, I think all these kind know, of explorations no, 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 of I, what I, humanity is, I just yeah. find really, really interesting. And I think he's an interesting twist on that search mm. for connection with other people and a connection with what it means to well, be well, alive. He certainly wants to human. connect with Scarlet Witch, Whoa. doesn't he? Yeah. Hey, 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 get his USB stick out. <laughs> oh, come, on, come, on. come on. Not just because you thought of it a second before I did. But, <laughs> but. <laughs> okay, I've got a question about Scarlet Witch, actually. Okay. Can I, actually, I mean, first of all, as much as I love the Leipzig splashdown thing, Vision sat that out a bit, didn't he? I mean, you know... He's, well, he wasn't getting involved. But the, the other thing, the other thing is, right, we, in Age of Ultron, we saw quite clearly that Scarlet Witch can manipulate minds. Yeah. And um, she, doesn't do she, doesn't, she doesn't do that at all. In, in fact, now she just does wobbly purple stuff, which I, I still if, don't quite get. Given what happened the last time she messed with someone's mind, the Hulk went on a rampage and presumably killed a few people at least. Yeah. It certainly caused quite a bit of property damage. She may be sworn off that stuff now. Actually, there was remorse, wasn't there, in Age of Ultron, I think. There yeah, was, there was. There, there was yeah. She had a remorse scene, didn't she? Mm. Yes, yeah. yes. But yes. And, good point, and here good point. as well, right. I mean, she's clearly wary of her own powers. And mm. quite rightly so, because she's potentially the most most powerful Avenger. In, yeah. Avenger? F- F- Avenger? Wow, now I'm going full Dungeons and Dragons. Here is Avenger, uh, there is Avenger. <laughs> yeah, everywhere Avenger. Vision is, is very, very powerful as well. My take on the airport scene is that it could be over in five seconds if they just got their shit together. She could just go and whisk everyone away and he could yeah. just phase through people and just, well, it's icky, but he could. He could he could 
grab their hearts, rip it out of their chest. He could do all that sort of stuff. But everybody, but everybody, (laughs) everybody to some degree is a little bit pulling their punches there, aren't they? I mean, that's the point. Yeah. I mean, they obviously expressly say it in in regards to Black Widow and Hawkeye in that lovely little beat in that scene. But none of them want to kill each other. They're all trying to, you know, just knock each other down and make each other listen. And I love that in the middle of the scene, every even as they're fighting, they're still trying to win each other over. Oh yeah, Clint, for example, talking to Natasha, we're still friends, right? Yes. Yeah. How hard you hit me. But even like, you know, Captain America trying to talk to Spider-Man and go, "Do you know what this is about? Do you know what you're doing here? Do you know?" Mm. And and he's going, "Oh, well, Tony said you'd say that." So there's that continuing effort throughout the scene. Every time they even pause, yes. they're still trying to talk it out. And I think yeah. that is what sets it apart from maybe some other films, we're not, yeah, which thing, we're not yeah. going to talk about. No, but uh, I love I love that sequence. I mean, we know we talked about it a little bit beforehand, but it's got so many great moments in it, and I love the way it just builds and builds and builds and eventually when they run at each other and then you know each person pairs off and starts fighting again it, it's it's fantastic um, and my second favourite moment in this movie uh, after the, the Peter and Tony sequence it's so good little things like when Scott Lang retrieves Captain America's shield and hands it to him and goes <laughs> I believe this is yours Captain America and because he's so overawed by the fact that he is literally standing next to Captain America I cannot believe this and Paul Rudd this movie for me eases any worries I have about the Russos not being able to handle Infinity War Part 1 but, or, or indeed 2 because they understand that not every character has to ha- dominate but they have to have something to do and Paul Rudd comes into this movie he's in it for less in five minutes I think in total but he is brilliant the scene where he meets Captain America is one of my favourite things when he giants up as giant man and he's but oh, oh, and he can't believe how high how big he is so good so good and then the uh, really weird non sequitur of does anyone have any uh, does anyone have any orange slices what's that about that's half time yeah half time is that half time yeah okay okay very good fair enough it's a a sporting reference it's not half time it's not half time he's done he's done you're the sporting man you dingus (laughs) There's so much, so much great stuff. I'm getting serious Crichton vibes off Vision. Oh my god! <laughs> You're both awful. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit where he comes through no. the, the wall and it goes, but the door was open. And no, I th- honestly, do you know what I get Smeg from Vision? <laughs> what I get from Vision is what I wanted from the movie Legion, which is basically Paul Bettany playing an angel. Coherence. Well, yeah, that, I mean that film was bad on a number of levels, but but the idea of Paul Bettany playing an angel, I was like 100 percent there for. Mm. So uh, so this kind of feels more like they've. They've kind of got that. He's a little bit Castiel and Supernatural. Good jumpers. Great jumpers. Yeah, really yeah, good line in yeah, knitwear, you know? Yeah. Well, she's actually, I, I believe that's, that's, he, he was presented like that. I, I don't know if it was regularly in the comics when he was doing his downtime, yeah. but I know there's there's one image of, of the Avengers sort of, you know, having their downtime and you, you see Vision with his kind of crappy jumper. I just realised we didn't really answer the question someone asked about, do we think Simo's the best villain since Loki, do we? I mean, that's set aside Wilson Fisk who lives in his own little okay. universe and I, I do feel uh, it's a shame uh, that we didn't no no no, 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 no. I'm David talking, Tennant I'm and Jessica Jones yeah, oh, but he's really? in the same universe I'm saying, I'm saying not TV I'm saying in the in the films is he the best villain since Loki Mm. No, I think it's got to be Malekith the Accursed, right? Of course, Who's, I mean, uh, who is so memorable and uh, nuanced. Oh my God, Malekith the Accursed. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to see that. I did like Alexander Pierce, but um, yeah. I, like, I like Loki more, so yeah. Probably, is is it just me? Is it just me, or is it the older that Michael Douglas and Robert Redford get, the, the more the same they look? Because I, um, I was watching Win Soldier again, and I kept thinking it was Michael Douglas. <laughs> he looks nothing like Robert Redford. You're a madman. 
Okay. Absolute um, madman. But in, in short, yes. The problem is, the problem with him as a villain figure is he's really interesting and it's really, in, you know, it's a fascinating angle on it. But you, you don't necessarily get the fun stuff that you got with Hiddleston's Loki. Mm. You know, the big speeches and the posturing and, and that kind of a thing. The kind of almost sort of, you know, the, the, the self-aware overacting of the villainy kind of a thing. Which was just really great, really fun to enjoy in both the Thor films, seriously, and uh, and in Avengers, it's, so your it's the Marvel, is yes, but it's, yeah, it's a yes, but it's, <laughs> it's the Marvel. It is the Marvel weakness in a way. The kind of the, the villains don't tend to land as well as the DC villains. I think. I think often. the. I think yeah. I think the also the best Marvel villains are with other studios. Yeah. So that yeah. that's also a little bit of a yeah Magneto, of a problem. Magneto Galactus, and and, uh, and oh Spidey's God. gallery is yeah. pretty pretty packed. Although well. now. Technically speaking, they can come in to, to this they one. They could, yeah, which opens up some doors, maybe. It does open up some doors. I want to see a, a Simo prequel, where we see how he grows as a person, perhaps as he goes from Hemo to Simo. Hey, I've just missed an opportunity to say something about he's not he's not low-key, but he is low-key yeah. as a villain. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you guys are maybe just... Can we pretend I said that earlier? Uh, <laughs> Do you want us to, really? Two, yeah, yeah. Two very last quick things. Giant Man, okay. good. Yes, yes. Like, yes. like, good yes. Giant Man. Yeah. Absolutely. Hawkeye, good. Yes. I, I like the fact that he comes in, he's totally glib now. I think they've they finally got that character after the bit of a shaky start. Yeah, uh, I, I really loved in, in Age of Ultron how his death was continuously foretold and then not forthcoming. Mm. And uh, and I really enjoyed him this time, yes. And uh, his little introduction of himself to Black Panther as well. I thought that kind of stuff was, was great. Yes, mm. hi. Uh, yeah, I love the fact we that no one... <laughs> I don't know if he's ever been called Hawkeye in any of these films. No, I don't think he no, he's just Clint. He's just Clint. Yeah. Which is an awesome superhero name. Yeah. You know, because Black Widow gets called Black Widow, Captain America, all this sort of stuff, and Clint. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's awesome to me. And the last thing is, as Feige said in the interview, they never really considered putting Daredevil into this movie or any of the Netflix or any of the ABC heroes. Missed opportunity? Or mm. can you see where they're coming from? Well, I will say that I think... Peggy's send-off here may also be a little bit of a send-off for that show, which I don't know if it's formally being cancelled, but it hasn't been renewed yet, to the best yeah, of my knowledge. Yeah, I think it's a goner. Which is, which is a shame, because I really enjoyed it. But I think that the funeral here was a little bit of a funeral for the TV show as well. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing. But no, I mean, I think at the moment they're okay keeping them apart. And I'm interested to see, you know, Inhumans has dropped off mm-hmm. the schedule. Mm-hmm. And of course, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has moved in a very Inhumans direction in the last couple of years so I'm wondering if that will keep it separated or if we will see further crossovers in we shall see looking forward to Infinity War Part 1 where Hayley Atwell appears as a force ghost that's (laughs) and gives us real closure I mean Peggy Jessica Jones wouldn't want anything to do with any of this lot anyway probably not (laughs) would she Marcus and McFeely we know have finished at least one draft of Uh Infinity War unless you've had an update and they've done number two Um, no I do know that Ryan Coogler has just delivered his draft of Black Panther his first draft That's, that's all I know so they're hard at work they've got enormous numbers of, of moving parts for that film. They're writing for characters who haven't been cast yet, which I'm pretty sure means Captain Marvel, among others, presumably. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm just really excited to see what happens with it. That is it for our Captain America Civil War spoiler special. How long was that, Helen? How long were, how long were we up to? We're at one twenty six here. But oh, the film's the almost two and a half hours long. We can do another hour. Dan's got to go, but Helen and I are going to stay here. We're going to go right through to midnight. <laughs> right, um, see you. Bye, bye, Dan. Bye. Thank you to Dan.
Thank you, Chris. Thank you to Helen. To Lou. Thanks for your questions. Thank you so much for listening. As ever, the regular podcast is up every Friday. We'd love it if you could listen, if you could subscribe, and if you could give us a lovely review on iTunes. That's always very helpful for us as well. And the next spoiler special podcast will be X-Men Apocalypse. The interviews will be with Brian Singer and Simon Kimberg. So I'm really, really looking forward to that one. Do check that out. It'll be out on Monday, May 22nd. Is that a Monday? I don't know. Whatever Monday it is after the movie opens, that's when the Apocalypse uh, Spoiler Special will hit. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Chris Hewitt. Goodbye. 